Well, if you were king for a day, or perhaps emperor, we can skip right past those lame monarchies, what sort of federal agencies would you get rid of? Well, I'm going to be going through quite a few of them today, and we're actually going to explain how much these federal agencies, like what their budgets look like, what they're supposed to do, all of those good things. And then we're going to, we're going to sit here before our, our panel of resident experts and determine which of these agents, which of these agencies should be reformed, which of them should be just abolished altogether, and which should be, I don't know, maybe federally prosecuted by the agencies that we keep, <laughs> we keep after the fact. So we're going to go over all of that today. Plus, we are going to give you, for anybody out there, that is thinking we're being mean with respect to getting rid of some of these federal agencies or some of this, these federal, these, these budgetary items. We're going to get into some of the details and some of the specifics of how exactly the federal government has been using your money at a time of high inflation and high prices. So all of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument, powered by Good Ranchers. We want to thank one of our circle members for helping us to get, uh, have this idea today. Thank you so much to him. If you haven't already, go down to the link in the description and make sure you sign up for our community chat. We're about to cross 500 members. We'd love to have, have you join us there and get to know you. All right. Well, as always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good person. With us back is my beautiful bride, Queen of the Bees, Tina. Hello, everybody. Oh, and, and I you, do have to mention one thing yeah, yeah. today is, uh, oh, first of all, I am wearing some honeycomb earrings that uh, Karen Hamilton got for me. So thank you, Karen. Yeah. And also, today is Nick's birthday. I don't look a day over 50. That's that's what they say, even yeah. though you're 44. Exactly. Poor guy. <laughs> He's always like, thanks a lot. But um, yeah, so Nick, tell them what I got you for your birthday. Oh, so uh, Tina actually got me. Uh, I'm so proud of myself. You know, you know those like carnival popcorn machines, like the ones like on the two wheels that, yeah, yeah she got me. So I had been like, I have Gina, my chief of staff. I've told her like for years now, I'm like, you know what, you know what our office in Richmond really needs? She's like, what? I'm like a popcorn machine. She's like, no, no, Nick, it does not need a, we do not need a yeah, popcorn Yeah, when I found this thing, when I, okay, so I was going to get him like, you know just a cheap one off of like Amazon or something. But, uh, but then I found on Facebook marketplace, somebody had this one that was like a gold medal, like a real Heavy nice one, one for cheap. And they, these things, the machine and the cart are sold separately. And in all total is like 1700. I got this thing for 200 bucks on Facebook marketplace. Works look great condition. I was so proud of myself. So frugal. And I kept like, when I told Nick, I got you your present today. And I was just, I kept like snickering to myself. So proud of myself because yeah. this man loves popcorn. I do. He I like popcorn. loves popcorn. And it's so, actually pretty, like if you're not loading it down with butter, it's actually one of the more healthier snacks yeah. you can have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So <laughs> is, as long as you eat it plain. <laughs> well, let's see what, uh, well, let's see what our resident historian and uh, political prognosticator Christian Heinz thinks about that. Um, no comment. Cause I used to work at a movie theater. I got oh. I got, I loved popcorn until I got sick and tired of eating it every single day. <laughs> By the way, fun fact about Christian, and I think uh, maybe if we have time on the episode day, we're going to force him to listen to it. Christian has never heard the song Richmond North of Richmond. Nope. I've intentionally avoided, avoided it. I get that. Because he's a curmudgeon. Oh my gosh. Everybody such a curmudgeon. A no, I'm just, I just don't like country music. I don't know what to say. Just, like, he didn't, he didn't mean it. He didn't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I definitely meant it. I do not like country music. This, well, you're going to make an exception for this one. You know what I like awesome. though? Um, when you care. told me about this, <laughs> all right, I'll just walk out. No, when, when you told me about this episode, 
my first uh, initial thought was, which agencies to cut? All of them. (laughs) Anarcho-capitalism, baby. Like, there you go. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next Thursday. You know, have a great one. You know, thanks to Good Ranchers. That's it. Like, you know, that's a wrap. Like, like that, that was the initial, you know, the initial response. Good, Good Ranchers is now the Department of Agriculture. Yeah, there you go. Like, I, 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 you know, um, uh, the, the Ron Swanson clip that, you know, my ideal form of a government is one guy in a room with a button for who to knew. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. I'm a big fan of popcorn, so I hope we get to try some of it soon. Oh, of course, of course. And and, and I got good news for you, good Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, central banking is probably going to it's probably going to be in for some bad news today. We love that as as my imperial majestiness decides which federal agencies are going to leave and which ones are going to stay. All right. So. Whenever we do this, and obviously, look, we live in Virginia. There's a large amount of federal employees. And so there's some people that get upset with us when we talk about cutting certain agencies. And here's what I want to point out. The very first thing I want everyone to understand when we talk about either cutting federal agencies or cutting federal spending. Some people seem to believe that if we cut these positions or if we cut this spending, all of a sudden the the infrastructure, the, the people, the money, all of it just disappears overnight. That's not what happens. That's not what happens. When you look at why a lot of these agencies exist, why a lot of these departments exist and what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to achieve. And then you look at the amount of money they are spending and the amount of money that gets wasted on on fraud, waste and abuse. And then the amount of money that you could argue, okay, it's not fraud or or abuse, but is it really necessary? Especially in a time when, when a lot of Americans are hurting because here, the dirty little secret, the federal government didn't have any of this money except for maybe the stuff they printed, right? Which is, funny money, right? No, what they did was they took it. They took it from people that earned it. So they took the money out of the communities for, for, you know, that, that the money, excuse me, the money originated from have run it through a massive federal bureaucracy and are now going to send some of it back. So the way to properly think about a lot of this is not, oh, this, this, now we just lost all this funding for healthcare. We just lost all this funding for education. No, you didn't. You didn't lose it. Right. There, there's various mechanisms that you can that can be used in order to make sure that that money goes into the various institutions toward the, the various types of spending that you would like to see. The difference is, is who decides. And when the federal government takes the money, the federal government is the one deciding how it's spent. But when individuals keep the money, they get to decide. Or if you want to compromise, fine. Do you think the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, do you think we have a better handle on probably what Virginia needs than what the federal government needs? And, and wouldn't that probably be the same for every other state in the union. So these are some of the things that we just want people to think about. Get in the right mindset that just because the the spending got taken out of the hands of the federal government doesn't mean the money disappeared. It means that you have to run it through a lot less bureaucracy before it can actually be spent on the things that you might want it to be spent on. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So first and foremost, let's look at our beloved national debt. And so this this is from a, um, a website called truthandaccounting.org. And they have two figures here. One is the U.S. published national debt. And that is sitting at about $32,730,889,887,122. And the bottom line is this is actually constantly moving. This is constantly moving. We just got to 
frozen right here. Now you'll see underneath that they say the truth. The truth is 159 trillion five hundred and seventy-seven billion nine hundred and fifty-six million five hundred and forty-six thousand. All right. And they say that's each taxpayer's share is roughly nine hundred and fifty-two thousand dollars. So that's a big jump. What is the difference? What is the difference? Let's go ahead and scroll down. So you're going to see right here, the U.S. published national debt consists of debt held by the public, intergovernmental holdings, including debt held by Social Security and Medicare trust funds. It does not include total unfunded Social Security and Medicare promises. So this is the important part to understand. You're a U.S. citizen. There are things that are promised to you that you're not currently getting, right? Your Social Security and, and other things. This amount is updated periodically to coincide with the debt to the penny, right? The truth, that's the number that they gave, that $159 trillion, is assets and liabilities reported in the financial report of the United States government, unfunded Social Security and Medicare uh, promises based on assumptions. And this is based off of the number of people being born and whatnot. And what they do is they take this out over 75 years. So scroll down a little bit. And they have a whole thing. If you want to read the whole financial state of the union, you can, but it's what the federal government has assets, 4.96 trillion. And then what the federal government owes unfunded Medicare promises, 64.29 trillion unfunded social security promises, 47.7 trillion publicly held debt, 24.3 trillion pension and retire healthcare liabilities, 12.8 trillion other liabilities, 1.8 trillion. That brings you up to a total of 151 trillion. So what they're, what they're basically letting everyone know is that, a lot of these programs, especially Social Security and some of our, our healthcare programs, there are a lot of unfunded liabilities associated with those that cannot be funded based off of the way the, the, the programs currently operate, the current tax structure, and the current population projected like growth, right? It cannot, like that's your liabilities. And then this gets you to a point where you can't fund anything else in the federal government except for your Social Security, your um, Medicare, and like debt service payments. Um, that's it. That's all you got based off of the amount of revenue that the federal government is taking in through either um, taxes or borrowing it. So that's that's what you might call a real problem. Now, there will some people that will tell you, oh, well, you can fix this easily, just raise taxes. Okay. But unfortunately, raising taxes has other consequences because how do you get tax revenue in the first place? Well, you get tax revenue by people going out and engaging in productive labor, well, if you keep taxing productive labor at ever and ever higher degrees, people tend to take their money and their assets at some point and they leave. They go to other places that don't tax it at the same rate. So taxing is not free in the sense that, oh, I'll just raise the taxes. And of course, people will continue to work at the same rate of uh, effort for less pay because that's what you're doing. Like if you think about it that way, when the federal government is coming in and saying, I want you to work the same amount of hours, I want you to be the same amount of productivity, but I want you to do it for less pay. I'm going to give you a pay cut. That's what a tax increase is. It's a pay cut for you. That means you have less money to spend on the things that are important to you, right? So that's what's actually going on here. So it's not just as simple as raising taxes and all this goes away. Got a quick question here from Maude. Is it possible to do a big audit of the federal government and how would you start? Yeah, they've done these. They've done, in fact, the DOD has gone through, I, I think, uh, I forget what Congressman was talking about. The DOD has gone through several audits. They fail them every year. They can't account for, I think it's hundreds of billions or is it trillions now? I think at this point it might be trillions of dollars that the DOD can't account for over several years. They don't have, they don't have a trillion dollar budget every year. Um, we're going to get to what their actual budget is. So yeah, you, you can audit them. Um, and they, and they do go through audits. The, the problem is, is that there doesn't seem to be a great deal of accountability. The other thing to keep in mind here is that 
when, when, when we break down what U.S. spending actually looks like, I think a lot of people think that the majority of U.S. spending is going to things like, you know, maybe defense or education. Nope. The majority of U.S. spending is going to things like Social Security, uh, Medicare, Medicaid programs. That's what it's going to. Those, those are called, uh, that's mandatory spending, right? There's discretionary, discretionary spending, which is the certain amount of money that the federal government is not already obligated to spend for certain things. Right. And they have a, a great deal of, of discretion over that. That's why they call it that. And then they have the, the mandatory funds, which fall into things like Social Security. That ex, that's actually a much larger portion of the budget. So, yeah, we can do the audit. We should do the audit. The question is, is what conclusions do we come to after the fact? And unfortunately, when we do these audits, we our politicians never seem to come to the conclusion that what we need to do is either drastically cut some of these programs or drastically cut some of these agencies. Um and, and the way the statement goes, I can't remember who was it that, that said it, but it's politicians don't lose their seats for spending money. And, and so they keep, they continue to spend more. They bring home the bacon, so to speak. All right. Um, <laughs> Aldi says, I heard from the grapevine that Trump located $880 trillion that was hidden and Fort Knox was empty with no gold in it, but the Dems hit it uh, once the election was over. Isn't it strange? I don't know the, I, I think, I mean, I mean, that's more money than exists in the entire world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 oh, this is why I'm skeptical trillion. of the grapevine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I would say, yeah, I don't think the, yeah, I, I don't think it was 880 trillion. And as far as gold, the problem is, is we're, we've been off the gold standard since the seventies, since Richard Nixon. So how much gold is in Fort Knox just isn't as relevant as it used to be. Not, not to say it's not relevant, but it's yeah. All right. And so thank you for the super chat. Yes. Thank you very much for the super chat. Okay. So the first one is we, we want to talk a little bit about what does the debt actually look like? Let's go to the deficit. So clearly, clearly with this massive amount of debt and these unfunded liabilities, the federal government and our politicians in DC, the Richmond North of Richmond are carefully looking and how we can be meticulous and how we budget so that we are we are not adding to this debt, which is going to cause huge problems for, oh, nope, they're not doing any of that. In fact, due to a structural imbalance between revenues and spending, the federal government continues to run large and growing budget deficits. For 2023, the Congressional Budget Office estimated in May that the federal budget deficit will total $1.5 trillion, about $160 billion larger than in 2022. That's just the deficit. That's just the deficit deficit again for that's not money that's going to any of uh, all that no. that's paying is well honestly all that that's paying is the federal reserve mostly because they hold most treasuries but other than that china japan well when we look at again just so everyone's clear i'm, I'm pretty sure everyone understands it but just so we're clear debt is the money you already owe deficit is the money that you're, you're, you're increasing your debt. You've gone over your budget for this year by 1.5 trillion dollars and so that will now be added to the debt Oh, I'm sorry. I you need, were I need the, to clarify. I, I thought this was interest payments no, on no, no, the debt no. because that's also getting close to a trillion dollars. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's not, it's not there yet, but it's, especially with interest rates, what are, what they are right now yeah. for the longest people forget this, that like for the longest time, the debt was very large, but interest payments were, were relatively stable because interest rates since the eighties had consistently been falling. Yeah over time, I mean, not every year, right? But over time, since the 80s until 2021, interest rates have been on a downward incline. Yeah. And so what that meant was is that you could grow the size of the debt, but the interest payments would stay the same. Now we have the opposite happening where interest rates are, you know, at their highest level in like 15 plus years. Yeah. And thus, 
every time that the federal government has to issue new debt because they're not running a budget surplus, they're having to take on debt at a higher interest rate than the old debt that they're having to pay off with, you know, whatever the bond is, a, you know, 10 year bond, 20 year bond. Um, and, and so what that's going to lead to is an explosion of, of deficit spending, not just to pay for the government, just to pay for the interest on the debt that they already have, let alone the debt that they're accumulating in the future. So basically it's doom. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. So it's, so again, so not only do we have massive debt, we still have massive deficits and now we have massive de deficits in a world with much higher interest rates. All right, let's go to the next one. This gives you kind of an idea. So to getting back to the point that uh, Aldi was making and, and some other people were asking about as well is the federal budget in the fiscal year 2022. So to give you an idea, when we look at the mandatory, see, this is this is what I think a lot of surprises a lot of people. Mandatory spending is $4.1 What does that constitute? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, income security programs, student loan programs, and then others, $520 billion. That's mandatory, which means it, it, when all the money comes into the federal government, um, the majority of it, this, the, the, you could argue the vast majority of it, is already allocated. That's already there because of all these various programs that have to be financed. Then there's the discretionary spending. That's 1.7 trillion. So out of the discretionary spending, 910 billion is non-defense and then the rest of it's defense. And then they have the net interest uh, on the debt, which is $475 billion a year. So $475 billion a year is already there just to pay interest on the federal debt, right? So when you, when you look at the 6.3 trillion, that's the total outlays, 6.3 trillion, only 1.7 trillion of that is stuff that the, that the federal government is really like playing with on a, on a year over year basis. The other stuff is already spent. Um, go ahead and scroll down a little bit. And this is the total revenues. So individual income taxes represents 2.6 trillion. Payroll taxes represents 1.5 trillion. Corporate income taxes represent 425 billion and other represent, uh, what is that? 356 billion for total revenues of 4.9 trillion. So this is how you get this is how you get your major deficits, right? This is the government is bringing in $4.9 trillion, right? And then when it comes to what they're spending, we're at 6.9 or excuse me, six point was a scroll up again. Let me make sure I get that right. 6.3. Sorry. So that's again, once again, pretty, pretty significant problem right now. Now, some of you may be thinking, but Nick, this spending is necessary. It's going to truly important things that we absolutely need. Our audience knows better than the, and, that. And I just want to thank Senator Rand Paul for his excellent work on this. Senator Rand Paul gave us the Festivus report. So go ahead and scroll up. We're going to look at the waste of 2022. And Senator Paul will tell you he couldn't get to all of it. But he's giving you, let's just say, an, an appetizer, like a quick peek into the buffet of federal waste. So let's, let's take a look at 2022. Yep. What was the federal government spending your money on? Well, giving an eligible, an eligible citizens COVID economic injury disaster grants. That was $4.5 billion. For people That's who were not eligible. Not eligible. Not eligible. Using COVID relief funds to construct an 11,000 square foot spa, $140 million. Using COVID relief funds to purchase luxury cars, $31,500,000. A Wisconsin school using COVID relief funds to upgrade turf fields, $1.6 million. 
Um, what's another one? Oh, I like this one. Funding a 1.5 mile park in Austin, Texas used for yoga and concerts, $9 million. Starbucks espresso machines, DOD, $192,592. Um, let me see. Oh, this one. Oh, this one. You, you ready to be mad? You ready to be mad? All right. Maintaining 77,000 empty federal buildings, 1.7, is that a, yeah, 1.7 billion, $1.7 billion maintaining 77,000 empty federal buildings. Basic education projects in Jordan, 210 million. Um, help, oh, wait, this one's great. This one's great. You ready, you ready to be upset? You ready to be upset right here? All right. Helping illegal immigrants avoid deportation. I love that one. I laughed out <laughs> loud when you read that Department one. of Homeland Security, $168 million. So we have a portion, we have elements of the federal government that are using taxpayer money to help illegal immigrants avoid deportation from other elements of the federal government that use taxpayer money in order to deport illegal immigrants. How funny is that, that we have like elements of the federal government that are basically mutually contradictory in terms of their, their end goal. Well, I'm sure it's funny to you racist. <laughs> Let no, it be known that I'm certainly on the side of deportation more than I am of, of yeah. keeping illegal immigrants. But I just, I think that's hilarious that we have like, like we literally have federal agencies that are, are doing the exact opposite of what other agencies are doing. Yeah, but it doesn't end there. Subsidizing the free New York Staten Island Ferry Department of Transportation, $70 million. Why can't New York pay for its own fare? <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. How dare you? Of course, people don't say ferries city. anymore, yeah. Christian. Oh, my gosh. All right. Eastern, uh, what is it? Let me see. East Baton Rouge unused federal housing grants, 13,400,000. Oh, 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 here's a good one. This one, you know what? I think Rand Paul was a little bit harsh on this one. This one makes a lot of sense. Boosting the Tunisia travel sector during COVID-19. USAID, $50 million. They must have purchased a lot of Hunter Biden paintings. $50 million to boost the Tunisia travel sector during COVID-19. Why did they get $50 million and not the other 194 countries in the world? Well, once again, you're a racist against Tunisians. Oh, That's look, all, all that I'm means. saying is that all countries' travel sectors matter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, wait, wait, wait. This might, okay, this one, again, I think Rand might have been off. Um Watching hamsters fight on steroids, National Institute of Health, $3 million, $3 million. I don't know about you, but that actually needs to be a permanent budget item. Loading, loading uh, hamsters it, up it on steroids. entertaining. I, well, again, keep in mind, this is 2022. So like we've just come out of COVID. Okay, but what about the, injecting six-month-old beagle puppies with cocaine? That wow. 2.3 million. Also National Institute of Health, $2.3 million injecting six-month-old beagle puppies with cocaine. Encouraging Ethiopians to wear socks, two point one million. No, no, that says shoes. Oh, shoes. Sorry, sorry, shoes. My bad. My <laughs> that's bad. More, that's way more important. Uh, way, way more important. Way now, more important. Now, now it makes sense. Now the expenditure yeah. makes sense. Um, training mice to binge drink alcohol, one point one million dollars. This is all, by the way. This is all National Institute of Health. If, for those of you who are wondering, what is the National Institute of Health? Whenever somebody said to you that wearing a cloth mask somewhere around was going to save you from the pandemic. And they said, trust the experts. 
That's who they were talking about. The National <laughs> Institute chat, of Health. Our chat is just littered with people typing WTF over and over yes. again. Yes. <laughs> All right. Studying the romance between parrots. That was uh, 689000 Wow, they really cut the budget on that one. I, I really thought they could have they done more. Um, using mice to study racial aggression. Using mice to study racial aggression. I'm a little bit curious on, on how this, and, and again, what did, what did they spend on that? $519,000. So what about half the one dollars. right above it, though? Studying the social life and collective intelligence of ants. Yeah. Oh, I love, I love this, uh, this last one. Researching if Thanos could snap his fingers wearing the Infinity Gauntlet. $118,000. Researching if it would be physically possible for Thanos to snap his fingers. The federal government spent $118,000. That's like... They're basically finding out... By the way, do you know who the the NSF is? That's the National Science Foundation. Trust the science, Nick. Exactly. When anybody told you to trust the science, this is what they were talking about. And they spent $118,000 researching if Thanos could snap his fingers wearing the Infinity Gauntlet. But but that's not all. They did some other stuff in here, too. They, they uh, studied verifying the Verifying that kids love their pets. That was NIH. Verifying that kids love. Now, if had the study been verifying that kids love their pets when they're high on cocaine... That might have been after they've injected them with cocaine. Yeah, I actually and think that the unused hotel rooms for illegal immigrants at 17 million was a pretty big one you skipped. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, I'm sorry. There's so many I'm, of them here we can't. Yeah. And, and Rand Paul said he couldn't even get to all of it. Yeah. So there is there a total here? Somebody was asking if there was a total. Oh, let me see. Scroll down a little bit. Let's see the total. Actually, it might be on the, the page up above. He also put the payment on the national debt, which is 470, I think, billion. Um, yeah, SBA made 4.5 billion worth of improper COVID-19 economic injury disaster loans. Holy crap. Scroll, scroll up to the top, scroll up to the top. I want to see if there's a, uh, a total somewhere up here. Oh, wait, stop, stop. This year I am highlighting a whopping 482,276,543,907 of waste, including, yeah, the steroid induced hamster fight club. That, honestly, that's the only one I'd keep. I think that's the only one I'd keep. I, you know what? I would have, I would have merged this. I would have merged this. I would have taken the cocaine away from the beagles because I've I had beagles. I can't believe these people and their cocaine puppies. I, I think, I think now if you would have given the cocaine and steroids to the hamsters and then done a fight club, you, that program probably could have paid for itself. If you put it on Netflix, I'm just, so is this what we show everybody when, when people go, Oh, but the government has to spend this money. Yeah, it's like if the government didn't spend this money, who would pay to give hamsters cocaine and steroids, Nick? Who would do it? You? Would you do it? Are you going to go out and adopt all the cocaine-infused We're hamsters, We're not allowed Nick? to because if, if it's you're not illegal. Gonna, if you're not going to adopt all the hamsters, then you don't care about this. See, <laughs> if a guy on the street in Detroit uses cocaine on himself, that's illegal. Yeah. But if the federal government does it, it's suddenly well, research wearing, that warrants, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. If you're wearing a lab coat, it. it all changes. All right. Somebody <laughs> asked Christian if they are still studying shrimp and lobsters on treadmills. Yeah. And I, 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 I told Bandit that that was a uh, previous year. There's actually a question that no, I think. That was a previous year. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, Wait, it, there was one. What was that one where they like fed cocaine to the pigeons or something? Yeah, that was you also a that? previous year. Yeah, that was a previous year, too, is determining whether or not... Um, 
Yeah, cocaine. it was determining the effects of cocaine on pigeons. Yeah, but it was something different oh, too. It was almost was like another, the it was almost like the sexual oh, the habits. Mating habits. It was the of, mating habits of, of pigeons on cocaine. And I'm like, you know what? I I can do this study for half the cost. I'm just going to tell you, I'm 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 thinking it probably affects it. <laughs> so there's actually a really good question from Lego Spartan that I want to ask you. Yeah. I I told him in the chat my views on it, but I wanted your take on it since we've gone through some of the like ridiculous spending and we're about to jump into, you know, like all right, let's talk about some of these agencies and whether or not they need to be eliminated. Um, he asked a question of um, uh, the, the, the concept of debt forgiveness. And uh, the question that he's got is, um, this will never happen, but if all the nations, uh, if all the nation had debt forgiveness and we all started from ground zero, would the U.S. keep spending the way they do now or would they restructure? And I told him in the chat that from my point of view, there is no concept as like debt forgiveness doesn't exist No, because somebody still pays Yeah, because what debt is, is you've taken out money for, for every dollar of debt. There had to be somebody to lend that dollar. Yes. And so when you forgive the debt, you're defaulting on the debt and you're telling the lender, I'm not paying you, which means in effect, the lender pays the money now because yeah. they gave you money that they're never going to get back, which effectively means that they're paying it. So when you say debt forgiveness, what you're basically saying is we're shifting the burden of who's going to have to pay it back yes. to the person who lent it in the first place. Yeah, we, we talked about this a lot when they were talking about student loan uh, debt forgiveness and we we're like, OK, the federal government didn't spend its own money. It spent somebody else's money. And you cannot you cannot forgive. Like, theoretically, if I give you a loan and I forgive it. That doesn't mean that the consequences of forgiving that loan went away. Like I'm still out the money because theoretically I gave you the money and you were going to go do something with it and then pay it back, usually at an interest rate. And then I'm projecting what I'm going to do in the future based off of receiving that money with interest. So if I now forgive it, then, okay, yeah, you're off the hook. But now I have less money to spend on whatever else it is. Now, this is especially egregious when it's the federal government because they're not spending their money. Elizabeth Warren, Liz, isn't spending her own money, right? Um, so that's the problem with it. So whenever we talk about debt forgiveness, the, the important thing to understand is uh, all you're doing is you're transferring the responsibility for pain. That's what it is. You're not, you're not forgiven in the sense that it just goes away. You're transferring the responsibility for who has to pay for it. Um, There's another fantastic question in the super chat from Nico Barney. Yeah. Um, Nico says the real question is when does all of the spending break the camel's back? We've done like whole podcasts yeah. about this. Uh, and why does anyone want to share a government with people who haven't been able to balance a checkbook in over 60 years? Fantastic question. And thank you for the, yeah. thank you for the super chat, by the way, what are your thoughts on that, Nick? So when, when they, when it breaks the camel's back, I think is, you know, we've talked about this before with things like a sovereign debt crisis. We've talked about it when, um, the federal, basically our, our mandatory obligations our Medicaid, social security, Medicare. Um, we get to a point where if you raise taxes, you, you, you have such a, uh, um, negative impact on economic development and economic growth that you're not actually collecting more in revenue. You may have raised the taxes, but you're not collecting more in revenue. There's this, I don't know why this is so hard for some people on the, on the progressive left to understand. There is a point where if you tax, you know, past a certain rate, either through people leaving the country or people, you know, committing fraud or whatever else, they don't pay the taxes. Or what they do is they drastically decrease their economic output because it's no longer viable to do it. Like, why would I work, you know, um, so much harder if the percentage that I'm going to have to pay in taxes is, is so much that it, it's no longer worth my time to do it. 
And then what you actually have is you have higher tax rates and decreased revenue. So there, there is a sweet spot. And Arthur Laffer uh, talks about this. Um, I actually had a, a couple, couple days that myself and about probably 30 other state legislators, we got a chance to just sit with Art Laffer for two days and really go over tax policies and understand this concept. So you're going to get to a point where you can't just tax your way out of the problems that we're currently in. You're not going to grow your way out of the problems because the the debt has become so significant and the interest on the debt, along with all of your mandatory programs. So what's the last thing left, especially when people no longer want to loan the federal government money? Well, they've got to print. Well, when you print and you have an inflationary crisis, you get to hyperinflation. That's the part where I think the, the camel's back has been broken because now in order for the federal government to quote balance their books, they essentially have to screw over everyone in the economy by inflating the currency. And as we, as we discussed, I think it was last episode, inflation affects people very, very differently. If you're, if you're at one end of the economic spectrum and you actually have the ability to move assets, then inflation, uh, inflationary monetary policy doesn't hurt you quite as much, at least in the immediate, um, immediate return. Uh, plus, if you've positioned yourself in a way to where you're the first people to get the money, you're actually getting the, the full value of that dollar when you first go up to go buy assets. It's everybody downstream that's then impacted by um, you know, rising prices who are living on a fixed income. They're the ones that are just, they're, I mean, they're just done. Like this, that's the part where you actually get people revolting uh, and pushing back. And then the question just becomes, who are they revolting against and why? Like, do have we properly diagnosed the problem so that the people who are justifiably angry direct that anger at the right people? I'm not suggesting violence. I'm just saying that they properly understand, yeah, these are the people that screwed you over. Um, and that's, that remains to be seen because what we've seen in a lot of countries is that's not the case. You always get some, you know, figure that's able to, you know, point all of their anger in a particular direction that isn't necessarily useful for solving the problem. But I think it's going to, I think it's going to come through hyperinflation. I think it's going to come through a point where the federal government can just no longer pay its bills, can't tax anymore, can't uh, borrow as much as it needs. And so it's going to start printing at, at excessive rates. And we, we got a, a small peak of what that looks like during COVID. Um, I think we're going to see it for other things here in the future. Um, just to give you an idea too, like when, when he, he likes to say like Rand Paul scratched the surface of what he thought was wasteful spending. And it came out to, uh, you know, $482 billion. Like that's, that's roughly the state budget of all of South Dakota, right? It's more of the state budget than Delaware. Um, like that's, that's a massive amount of money. And like he said, he was just scratching the surface. I think he came up with like 20 line items, right? He, he could have gone on. So with all of that out there. So now like, hopefully we've made a case that the federal government has not done a good job spending your money. It's not done a good job managing its budget. It's not going to, it's not done a, a good job uh, managing deficits. Uh, it, it, it's Can done I a horrible job of all of it. When, when you said that's more than the state budget of South Dakota, no, that's more than the state budget of California. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. 482 billion. Yeah. You're right. You're right. 482 yeah, billion is like that. that that's yeah, like the state budget of California is 286 billion. I had one of my desks. Yeah. Up, that's sorry. a huge, because yeah. I was like in Virginia, our budget's like a hundred ish billion. And I yeah. remember like, I, I remember when Tara McAuliffe was like, this is our first hundred billion dollar budget. Congratulations, yeah. everybody. Like, like that's no, something that's to, brag about. That's to yeah. brag about. So to, so to give you an idea, this is, this is almost, or what is it? Right about twice the size of um, not quite twice the size of the largest budget in America, which state budget in America, which is California, which is also, I believe, the fifth largest economy in the world. So, so just just this waste represents roughly almost twice as much. Yeah, or or I mean, 
286 billion. So it's not really almost twice as much, but like, well, you know, 200 billion more than the state budget of California, which last I checked is not the most fiscally responsible state in the union. Um, There's probably a lot that you could cut from the California budget as well. Yeah. But I mean, that kind of leads us to the heart of of today's podcast, right? And I want to get to this too, because Nico Barney, again, thank you for the super chat. So GDP was at its highest during World War II. And now as we move towards World War III, the dam has break. I feel it's going to come sooner than later. So Nico, here's the other thing that I think is interesting when we talk about GDP numbers. We actually did a why minute on this, on why GDP numbers actually don't- I think they mean debt to GDP. Because that was at its highest oh, okay. level yeah, during, during World, World War II. II. Okay. And we're approaching that level again. Yeah, debt, debt to GDP, absolutely. The other thing, too, to remember about GDP, because politicians love to throw out GDP numbers, GDP actually includes government spending. So when the government prints a bunch of money and then spends it, that actually counts positively toward their GDP numbers. But obviously we know that that's not an accurate reflection on whether or not the economic health of your country is sound. So it's one of the ways that, you know, GDP numbers can be somewhat manipulative. They kind of cook their books this way. Yeah, they can, they can kind of cook the books with it. But after going to all that, now let's go into our list of federal agencies and let's get cutting baby. All right. This would be a lot simpler if we just simply said we what are, to keep. We are not <laughs> going to go over. I, we, we wanted to show you this page. Um, oh, can you scroll up to the top Hamilton? We wanted to show you this page, not because we're going to go through each one of these, but because we wanted you to get a feel for how expansive and massive this is because it's not good enough to just say, Oh, department of agriculture, department of agriculture has all kinds of bureaus and other things. And, and, you, and you're going to see that's true of like all of these things. So go ahead and scroll down and that's hang on. I, I want to read ahead. off the top of this, this article because it's, it's quite frankly, it's hilarious. The nerds at Wikipedia. And I say this as a fellow nerd, former Wikipedia and myself, um, has an article titled List of Federal Agencies in the United States. It's a long, long article. Yeah. But it starts with a hilarious admission. I'm going to read it off for our audio listeners. Legislative definitions of a federal agency are varied and even contradictory. The official United States government manual offers no definition, while the Administrative Procedure Act defines a uh, um, definition of agency applies to most executive branch agencies, Congress may define an agency however it chooses in enabling legislation. And through the subsequent litigation, often involving the Freedom of Information Act and the Government and Sunshine Acts, uh, these further cloud attempts to enumerate a list of agencies. Basically, what they're saying here is if you've ever been to a Wikipedia article of list of anything, a lot of the articles will say this list is incomplete. You could complete it by or you could help complete it by expanding it. What they're trying to admit here is that this is quite possibly an incomplete list of yes. federal agencies. So so we're going to now all we're going to do is we're going to slowly scroll through this and then we're going to have to go. It's so massive that we have to go to a separate web page to actually dig into some of the, the agencies. But as, as you're just scrolling down right now, Hamilton, this is Department of Agriculture. And I'm going to start to read some of this off. I mean, you have the Office of Human Resources Management, Office of Safety and Security Protection, Office of Ethics, Office of Hearing and Appeals, Office of Administrative Law, Office of Inspector General, Office of Partnerships and Public Engagement, Office of General Counsel, Office of the Chief Information Officer, Office of the Chief Financial Officer, Undersecretary of Agriculture for Farm Production and Conservation, Farm Service Agency, Commodity Credit Corporation, Natural Resources Conservation Service, Risk Management Agency, Federal Crop Insurance Corporation, Undersecretary of Agriculture for Food, Nutrition, and Consumer Services, Food and Nutrition Services, Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion, Undersecretary for Agriculture for Food Safety, Undersecretary of Agriculture for Marketing and Regulatory Programs, Federal Grain Inspection Service, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, 
plant protection and quarantine, wildlife services. We're not even done. We're not even halfway done. This is one agency, one agency, one, one, one department, excuse me, one department, one department. All right. We have the undersecretary for agriculture, research, education, economics, undersecretary for rural development, undersecretary for trade and foreign agricultural affairs, one department. Then you get a department of commerce, same thing. Office of General Counsel, Legislative Intergovernment Affairs, Public Affairs, Security, White House Liaison, Inspector General, Economic Development Administration, Minority Business Development Agency, National Technical Information Services, National Telecommunications and Information Administration, Institute for Telecommunication Sciences, Undersecretary for Commerce for Industry and Security, Bureau of Industry and Security, Undersecretary for Commerce of Economic Affairs, Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property, United States Patent and Trademark Office, Undersecretary for Commerce for International Trade, International Trade Administration, Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere, National Ocean... Holy crap. Like it just goes on and on. And then in, under each one of these undersecretaries, there's a whole bunch of other positions. There's a whole bunch of other, what you might call bureaus or agencies or department, whatever it is. And then you get into the, I mean, you can imagine, you can imagine like it's, it's insane. There's, there's just too much to go through. So let, let's switch over to this other site. And here's what we're going to do. We're just going to break this down by spending. All right. So at the top of the list, Budgetary resources, $3.2 trillion. We have the Department of Treasury. Now, again, the Treasury runs the Mint. The Treasury runs the IRS. The Treasury runs the Secret Service. The Treasury also manages a lot, you know, some of the, the, um, the spending that goes out for, you know, checks and things like that. Stimulus checks. Yeah. So, so it, it has a, it has a huge budget, right? Like right now it's listening to this as I think 24% of, I think the, it's not discretionary, it's something else, but let's start with, um, let's do this. All right. So the Department of Treasury is, you know, does make sense constitutionally to have a Department of Treasury, but do this, Hamilton, do a right click and, and make a separate tab for this because I want to I want to kind of show what this. And by the way, this page is usaspending.gov. So this is a government website. It's not like we went to, you know, something crazy. Go ahead and click on that one. All right. So what's the agency mission? The agency mission of the Department of Treasury is to maintain a strong economy and create economic and job opportunities by promoting the conditions that enable economic growth and stability at home and abroad, strengthen the national security by combating threats and protecting the integrity of the financial system and manage the U.S. government's finances and resources effectively. Does this really sound, I mean, think about all the discussions we've had about the United States constitution, about the founding, about the declaration of independence, about article one, section eight of the constitution. When they were going to set up a department of treasury, you could probably imagine like, okay, sure. The federal government takes in money and it's gotta be somewhere. And the federal government has the sole responsibility for managing the currency for the United States. So, okay. Yeah. It would make sense to have a department of treasury. Scroll back up, please. Does anybody imagine, does anybody imagine with the possible exception of Alexander Hamilton, that any of the founding fathers, Federalist Papers, Anti-Federalist Papers, any signers of the that any of them would have said, you know what we need is we need a Department of Treasury that is going to maintain a strong economy and create an economic job opportunities by promoting the conditions that enable economic growth, you know, managing the financial How system. The, why is, why is, like Alexander Hamilton wrote this. Why is the Treasury trying to create anything? Because we've been, exactly. we've been, our federal government has been colonized by Keynesians. That's exactly why. why is the federal government. Again, if you want to create economic and job opportunities by promoting the conditions that enable economic growth, great. Cut your, your department in half and stop trying to manipulate and micromanage the economy. Like what, what are the, let's think about this. I don't think they ever bother to ask the question. Okay. 
What promotes economic growth? Okay, I would argue that what promotes economic growth is when you have things like property rights and free markets. You, you have freedom to exchange. So essentially, you limit, you, you significantly limit the amount of regulatory and tax burden that you have on business, right? You limit it to just the very bare necessities to raise revenue for legitimate functions of government. And you, you, you reduce regulations to the very bare minimum to where people are not engaging in things like fraud or deception, right? But other than that, you allow people to figure out what sort of products and services customers want to be able to build businesses, to be able to provide those products and services at the, I've seen like Adam Smith, who wrote Wealth of Nations and was considered one of the fathers of, of capitalism and the whole deal. He conceded, I don't necessarily, but he conceded that, okay, government has an interest in infrastructure projects, that, that government should actually play a role in infrastructure projects and making sure that you have good roads, canals, ports, harbors, things like that. Okay, fine. If you wanted to promote economic development, theoretically, you could say that, that facilitating greater transportation across the country would help do that. But why would that fall under the Department of the Treasury? It wouldn't. The Department of Treasury is essentially should be there to manage the mint, you know, and, and maybe a few other minor roles, but to take on this massive responsibility of we're going to promote economic growth. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like whatever the politicians that are currently in charge think promoting economic growth looks like. And it usually comes with providing perverse incentives by handing out money that have the best political connections. That's what this is. So I would massively I, I would I would keep the Department of Treasury, but I would massively reform it, and I would significantly reduce it. Uh, reduce it. Um, all right, let's go. I want to jump to one here real quick. Um, go back to the other one. There we go. Uh, let's look at Department of Agriculture. So, by the way, Department of Treasury, three point two trillion dollar budget. Department of Agriculture, four hundred and ninety five billion dollars. Four hundred ninety five billion dollars. So, go ahead and bring up agriculture. All right, what is, what is the agency mission of the Department of Agriculture? No, this is the, yeah, yeah, USDA. We provide leadership on food, agricultural, natural resources, rural development, nutrition, and related issues based on sound public policy, the best available science, and efficient management. Now, keep in mind, keep in mind, with a 400 and what was it, $80 billion budget, $490 billion budget, 95, $495 billion budget, that's what they're, that's what they're handing out. Now, what you don't know is that in a lot of these programs, there's other things that fall into it. I want to say that like, uh, uh, some of like the, the food stamps and stuff like that fell under USDA. Huge, huge chunk of the department of agriculture's budget is going to the food, uh, food and nutrition service. Yeah. So when you're thinking department of agriculture, you're probably thinking, Oh, these guys, these guys provide assistance with respect to farming. Right. And, and maybe they provide some guidance and maybe they provide a central repository of of, you know, where a grading system on the meats or or, you know, they, they assist if there's some sort of like maybe outbreak or whatnot among cattle, like mad cow diseases like that. That's what they actually do. But instead, they have billions upon billions of dollars in their budget dedicated to things that arguably have very, very little to do with what you're probably imagining they do within agriculture. And that's why if, if you look at how I feel about agriculture, what would I would do? I would give it to good ranchers. I would let good ranchers just totally replace department of agriculture. Now, why would I do this? Well, because 
Well, the Department of Agriculture is is handing out billions of dollars in other people's money. Well, the Department of Agriculture is not exactly being honest with respect to where my meat comes from because it can be raised somewhere else, brought to the United States, and then all of a sudden, oh, it's American. Why? Because you stuck an American flag on the packaging at the last step of the process. When, when I'm frustrated about the lack of processing plants that they apparently can't open up more of with their huge budget of 490-something billion dollars, when all that's going on, you know who not letting me down when it comes to getting quality meat at a good price. Good ranchers. Good ranchers has somehow figured out, right, without without a budget of $495 billion confiscated from taxpayers, right? Good ranchers somehow figured out how to connect the consumer, right, with the rancher in order to get a quality product at a price that everyone agreed on. Do you know how much money that good ranchers has confiscated from customers? Zero, baby. Zero. Zero. People voluntarily hand over their money to get quality meat, quality pork, quality beef, quality poultry, quality seafood delivered to their door. Right? And how do you know it's good? Well, I'll tell you this much. Because of the commitment Good Ranchers has to working with American-based farmers who engage in the best practices possible. Now, let, let me ask you this. I trust my local farmer whose entire livelihood depends on providing me with a good product far more than I do some academic working at a federal bureaucracy that has probably never actually been to a farm, right? And here's the best part about it. If, they're, if, if you don't like what they do, you don't got to do business with them. If you don't like what the Department of Agriculture does, tough. You're handing over your money anyways because it's taxed. So this is what I'm talking about. I'm going to cut funding over here I'm going to cut funding over here. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put it back into the hands of consumers so that you can go out and you can go and do business with people like Good Ranchers who are doing business with American farmers to be able to get the best products possible to your table. High quality, good pricing. And now, if you use our promo code, promo code Nick, you will not only get $25 off your order, you will not only get free shipping, but if you sign up for one of the subscriptions, which, by the way, combating inflation, you can lock into yep. a particular price. You will also get two pounds of ground beef free. I believe, what is that, every month? Every shipment. Every, every shipment. Every shipment. On top of that, is the USDA doing that for you? Probably no. not. Probably not. They're taking your money, and what are they doing? They're giving it to other people, and then they're coming up with Pro probably ridiculous Probably to programs. farmers in Argentina. Can I, was, can I point out something kind of interesting <laughs> here? What? Is that every single agency that you bring up, at the very, very, very top, um, would you mind scrolling back up yeah. on this at a little bit at the very, very top, it says includes COVID-19 spending. Yeah. And is is, is COVID-19 spending something that we just attach to every single budget now? Well, why do you want people to die, Tina? Is that what you want? You want people to die. Have you ever seen that? You video? know, if the, if the department of agriculture can't find hand out COVID-19 money, then people will die. Everyone will die. Everyone. Have you seen that clip? Do you want Hamilton to look at Hamilton, honey? Look at Hamilton. But like, it's you interesting die? that the USDA <laughs> Department of Agriculture needs COVID nineteen spending in twenty twenty three. Oh, every element of the federal government needs COVID. Yeah. Every every element of the federal government needs more spending. We have a couple super chats. One that I want to read off that was actually kind of interesting. This uh, the shipbuilding observer says, "Strong economy, my butt." After adjusting <laughs> for inflation, as a mechanical engineer with HII, that's Huntington Ingalls Industries, mm -hmm. which by the way is the only manufacturer of aircraft carrier nuclear powered aircraft carriers in the United States in Newport News uh, Shipyard. Yeah, Virginia. Uh, um, here in Virginia. That's cool. Virginia has the power to construct nuclear-powered <laughs> aircraft carriers. Anyway, he says, he goes on to say, I have less buying power than the average household in 1933. But Thanos takes priority. Also, happy birthday, Nick. Thank you very much. No, it's, 
the, the frustration should should be real uh, with all this because again, when when you hear Department of Agriculture and when somebody says, "Hey, look, I don't know that the Department of Agriculture needs to have a budget of four hundred ninety five billion dollars," the argument that you get back is not, "Well, you know what? Let's do a close audit and see." I mean, obviously, we have a one point, you know. $6 trillion deficit. That's, that's pretty bad on top of $32 trillion in debt. Yeah. We probably should look at what, what are these programs? No, no, no. You just get told you hate farmers, right? God help you. If you have any criticism of the farm bill, there's almost it, which is so funny. Cause there's almost nothing the department of agriculture actually does that helps farmers. So they would argue because a lot of it is subsidy, like the farm bill is a good example of this. A lot of it is subsidization to farmers. And the argument is, is that we're subsidizing American farmers to help them to be able to compete in a, in a highly competitive global environment. Plus, we're keeping prices down on agricultural products. The thing that people need to understand, though, is, no, you haven't kept price down. You've hidden the costs because what you've done is you've taxed, you know, $495 billion. And then to the extent that you're actually giving it to farmers to be able to plant or in many cases to not plant. Let, let's let's keep this in mind during the Great Depression when people were literally going hungry, this idea that we've got millions of people in America going hungry, we've got program on top of program on top of program. If they're going hungry, it's because they haven't you know, been led to one of these programs to utilize it, not because the programs don't exist. But during the 30s, during the Great Depression, when people were literally going hungry, the federal government all right, was paying farmers not to grow crops or they were buying up excess crops and then destroying them. It's not like they were taking them over to the soup kitchens. So this is the part where I look at this. I'm like, I'm sorry, this is not the way to run agriculture. We are creating perverse incentives where we actually have farmers now that because of the regulations, because of the rules, because of everything else they have to follow, because of the taxes, they become less competitive. Because here's what people need to understand. When it comes to actual agricultural production in the world, the United States is third. Number one, I believe, is China. Number two is India. Those two are probably going to switch here pretty soon. But most of, that is, most of that is subsistence farming, right? They use it for their own consumption. The United States may be third in overall agricultural production, but we are number one in export. We are number one in exporting. We, we are the breadbasket of a significant portion of the world. And, it, and it's because our farming is so efficient. We, we can get a lot more out of the acres with the tools and the equipment and everything else that we use. American farmers are far more efficient. However, when you look at all the rules, when you look at all the regulations, when you look at the bottlenecks within the system, right, the way that the government addresses that is they say, well, we'll just give you more money. We'll just subsidize you to do X, Y, and Z, or we'll, we'll pay you to grow more corn for ethanol, and even though that's not what the market demands. Farm subsidies tend to be the one that everyone goes, oh, well, we like the farm subsidies. We just, we don't want to subsidize all this other stuff, but we like the farm subsidies. I actually had a conservative farmer um, actually say, you guys have no idea what it really costs to farm and you don't want to pay the food costs of real farming if those subsidies went away. Yeah. My answer to that is, yes, I do. Yeah. Yes, I do. You know, well, it's like you're taking my money one way or another. Like I'd rather know what it actually costs yeah. to buy the thing I want as opposed to having a politician taking it, running it through a massive federal bureaucracy. Because how much of that $495 billion is actually overhead in managing buildings, managing people, running healthcare programs for, you know, whatever. Like that that's that's all being utilized for things that aren't directly related 
to actually agriculture. And a Angel D points this out, and thank you for the super chat. USDA was originally founded to protect the integrity of our food. Now it is a captive agency for shady labels and to promote crap processed food. P.S. Happy birthday, Nick, and thank you all for a great podcast. Thank you very much, Angel. No, I, I think that there is a huge problem now, and this is one of the issues that we always have with federal agencies, is that you can tag whatever positive sounding mission statement you want on a federal agency. That doesn't mean it's going to conduct itself in, in just the most perfect ethical way in order to achieve the end state. I mean, can I ask this question? It, is it ideal to have a federal agency dealing with agriculture? Wouldn't it be better if we had private institutions, private organizations that were working in conjunction with one another that you could join if you thought they were valuable and that you could leave if you thought they were not valuable? Wouldn't it be better if $495 billion was recaptured in the economy based off of what people actually want out of goods and services? And then when it came to agriculture, organizations and institutions, and we have things like the Farm Bureau, right? We have things like VICVA and we have like the smaller uh, farm uh, consumers as well. The problem is, is that when you have these massive agencies, what you end up doing is you end up incentivizing farmers to work within the agency in order to get the money that they're handing out, as opposed to focusing on what is the best way to actually produce the product. I love that they think that we're using the best available science and efficient management. I, I'm sure on some levels, that's not to say that the people at USDA have never come up with, with good ideas for, you know, how to do ground cover crops in order to prevent the dust from going. Like, I get it. But you're, you're honestly telling me the only way that we can do that is through a $495 billion agency. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. All right. So ax the entire Department of Agriculture... Uh, problem solved. That's 100,000 jobs at the federal government that we eliminate, 100,000 pensions that we eliminate, also hundreds of billions of dollars that we save. I Personally, I don't think there's a single thing in the Department of Agriculture that we should keep at all. It was a, it was founded in the Civil War, and and everybody has this this idea that it, it pushes something that, quite frankly, it doesn't. It's mostly a mechanism to promote welfare. Yeah, and then the other side sense. that it does is it manages the Forest Service, which, yeah. by the way, I don't think the federal government should be owning those lands anyway. Well, um, and, and this goes back to the, and Thomas Sowell. If you want to if you want an idea, Thomas Sowell talks about, again, his time interning in the federal government out of college and talking about the distribution of, of welfare and actually wanting to do it. And this is, he did this as a Marxist, wanting to do a careful analysis on whether or not these programs were actually yielding the sort of returns they wanted. And they were not interested. And what he found was, is the federal agency, the, the department he worked for was not at all interested. In fact, they wanted to squash that because if it would have come back that the agency was actually doing something that was counterproductive to their mission, it would cost them a significant portion of their budget. So that's the, that's the important thing to remember. It's not that every single federal employee working in this is a bad, nefarious person that is just trying to get over on the system, right? But when you have systems that where there's perverse incentives inherent in the way that they operate, you can't be surprised when that has negative effects, both on the agency itself and the industry it's attempting to control. All right. So by the way, can I stress something that there's a difference between budgetary resources and the actual amount of money that, that, Spending. that they spent. So for example, yeah. the treasury department does not have a, a budget of $3.2 trillion. Yeah, they have resources. A, a huge mm -hmm. amount of, a huge, like 90% of that. I mean, the, the treasury department's actual budget is like 16 billion. Yeah. The, it, the rest of that is, it's the same thing with the Department of Agriculture. I actually looked it up. The Department of Agriculture's budget is about half of, of what this number is. It's actually still a huge number. It's actually $242 billion. Yeah. So the no, and that's, and that's fair. We, we, we should distinguish between budgetary resources versus I, the I might actually budget. read through through the, uh, so, yeah. some of these a little bit more as, as we get to each agency. But like, so, so Nick, I guess the verdict is, what would you do with the Department of Agriculture before we move on to the next department? I don't see why we need to have a federal Department of Agriculture. 
I just don't. Again, go to Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution and explain to me why we have this agency. Why do we have this department? And and you can say all day long, well, it's going to help coordinate. Why? Why do you need? Think about this for a second. Why do you need federal politicians and federal bureaucrats coordinating agricultural output? Why do you need that? Like it. At best, at best, constitutionally, the only thing that you could actually use to justify this is you could say, well, when it comes to international trade, okay, if that's what you want, then what this is, is a small, an incredibly infinitesimally small department, which provides some data to the federal government when they're negotiating trade deals. That's what it does. It doesn't sit there and try to tell farmers what to do. It doesn't sit there and try to say that this is the best practice and you should do this. Because what they're also doing is they're not just saying, hey, we got together and we had a bunch of people look at this and we, we discovered that we think this might be the best approach in order to grow whatever, industrial hemp. That's not what they're doing. They're then providing incentive programs, which says that if you do it the way the USDA wants you to do, you get benefits. And if you don't do it the way the USDA wants you, you don't get benefits. Well, doesn't the USDA also um, control like or have some, doesn't some of this have to do with the free lunch programs and things like that? Well, that's what we said. Like the, I, I can't speak to every single individual program that they do, but they do. They manage a lot with respect to um, what we used to call food stamps or EBT or like the, that sort of assistant programs that that falls within our Department of Agriculture, which I think is that a weird place to put sense. it. Doesn't make any sense. Well, no, that's well, that's because the point. <laughs> half the stuff that that is being purchased with this stuff isn't produce. So what's the next, uh, what's the next department that you want to go through? Well, Rob, Rob Bickle said, thank you for the super chat. It says USDA prioritizes along racial lines as well as a fourth generation farmer, rancher, I support demolishing the USDA. This is an important part too, because people always have this idea that, well, if you're against a federal agency, you must be against the people that the federal agency is ostensibly supposed to be helping. No, I, I think, I think it's the opposite. I think that a lot of these federal agencies create an, an environment where it actually makes it harder for the people in those industries. All right, let's go to um, let's go to Department of Defense because there's going to be a lot of people thinking, oh, well, Nick's a Republican, conservative. You don't want to talk about all the waste within the Department of Defense. Oh, don't I? Right? So I'll tell you the first thing that needs to be cut from the Department of Defense. Yeah, all of those secret programs that the UFO whistleblower told us about. <laughs> <laughs> so the important thing to understand about this, again, when it says budgetary resources, right, that doesn't mean that's its, its whole budget, right? It's $1.77 trillion in budgetary resources. I think their actual budget is somewhere around $800 billion. How much did they spend on that stupid ad a few years back where it was like, my mom. Oh, gosh, I don't know. But that a- was so Oh, they're like, they're, they're like super woke like LGBT. Yeah. Yeah. They did one. The CIA did one too on this lady that just was talking about all of her mental illnesses. And I was like, why would we be like, and then they did a commercial for the CIA and what did they do? Did they do like ground branch? Did they do covert operations? Did they do Intel analysis? No, they did someone that was like the EO rep at the CIA. As if when you're thinking CIA, you're thinking, you know, one day I want to be an EO rep, but at the CIA, that's where I want to be the equal opportunity. So rep. I know the Department of Defense has a budget of just like a, a, a just about eight hundred billion. I think yeah. it's it's just under that. Yeah. Um, 
Although, according to the federal government, they have resources of up to $1.77 trillion. So you got the Department of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, Defense Logistics Agency, Defense Health Agency, Missile Defense Agency, Defense and Information Systems Agency, U.S. Transcom. Oh, Transcom. <laughs> Washington Headquarters Service. That's transportation, people. And U.S. Special Operations Command. So I spent... Oh, the first thing that needs to be cut, other than the UFO thing, no. is um, the Department of the Air Force, because that's it's actually unconstitutional. Because the Constitution lays out for an Army and a Navy nothing in there about put the it back Force. into the army well Air it Corps. used to be the I, army I air corps yeah yeah well here, here's what i would say with with the uh, the department of defense i i think that there needs to be there's already been several audits of the department of defense and what we repeatedly find is that they don't do a very good job in accounting now obviously there's probably some things that are you know black ops off books sort of stuff but that really that really raises a question with respect to congressional oversight and you actually saw this during the ufo hearings where someone said they wanted to enact the Holman rule and the Holman rule. It was it the Holman. I think it's Holman rule. Holman rule has only been used like four times in us history, but it's essentially when Congress comes in and they're trying to get information on how money is being spent within a department. And the department is essentially like slow rolling it or obstructing it. And so what they do is they say, fine, until we get the information that we want in order to fulfill our, you know, constitutional responsibility for oversight, we're going to cut line items from the budget for the departments that we're talking about or individual positions. So like, it, okay, if they think the commander of this particular unit or whatnot is the one that's holding it up, fine. We just cut the funding for your position until we get the information. It's pretty cool. It's um, a very rarely used very because rarely used. it's so dangerous. It, yeah. could, it could be taken out of, you know, it, neither side historically likes to use it because, you know, you create an arms race, you know, when that happens. But no, that, that's a good example. Obviously, though, unlike the Department of Agriculture and some of these other departments we're going to get to, I really doubt that you're going to say get rid of the Department no, of Defense. No, I don't think we should get rid of the Department of, Department of Defense. I think that a couple things need to – I think people need to understand that a lot of the reasons why we have waste in defense has to do with the industries behind them. Um, so let, let's, let's be intellectually honest about this, okay? Some of the foreign aid that we send overseas, all right, uh, especially some of the military aid that we spend overseas goes in the form of us sending them us military style equipment. Like there's an X, there's a, there's a model that we use and then there's an export model. And so when we give foreign aid, a lot of the times what we're doing is we're giving an allied nation access to our defense industry, right? But an export version of it. So it's not as good, right? They get that. Okay, so the question we need to ask ourselves on some of this stuff is that if we're actually fighting with these allies or if we're trying to keep them in our camp in order to you know, maintain a balance of power or whatnot, can that be a, a reasonable exp expenditure of resources? I would argue that it can under certain conditions. Now, do I believe it's gotten out of hand, especially when you have you know, congressional leaders that are essentially saying, I don't want you to get rid of this program that you of the military have already said you don't want anymore because the plant for making whatever it is, is in my district. And it's going to mean jobs for my district. That is not an appropriate allocation of resources when it comes to it. So what I'm saying here is that this isn't just me trashing the DOD. It's not just me trashing the executive branch. Congress is entirely complicit in creating perverse incentives in the way defense dollars are spent so that they're spent not to give us the best and most powerful military in the world, but it's spent in order to make sure that they're bringing home the bacon to their particular district. 
And I think that's, that's very problematic. So I, I think what needs to happen is there needs to be accountability on the auditing of defense allocation. Um, and we need to see, we, we definitely need to see uh, an overall, I would say a cut in the defense budget. I wouldn't cut anything having to do with training soldiers, equipping soldiers, paying soldiers. I wouldn't do anything like that. But when it comes to There's a lot of our, so much overhead. Uh, our foreign expenditures and some of the other stuff that we're doing, I'm looking at this going, no, I, I don't get it. Again, I get some of it. I don't get all of it. And so I would, I would definitely, I, I would reduce and reform the defense budget. No question. No question. You know, Tim Burchett actually brought up, bringing up the UFO hearing again, that, that the Pentagon gets audited every year. And every year since he has first served in Congress, they've utterly failed that audit. Yeah. Um, so so I, I think that it's totally, you know, acceptable for conservatives to say, yeah, there's money that you can cut from the defense budget that doesn't impact our ability to, you know, wage and conduct wars if they need to be done. Like yeah. if, if China invaded Taiwan... Right. Yeah. Or the United States was attacked or somebody, somebody like that. I, I don't think that there's any conservative that says that we shouldn't have the strongest, most powerful military in the world. But you can do that without some of the fraud, waste and abuse that you see within the military industrial complex. So yeah. I think that's I mean, I, you know, I think that we're kind of on the same page there in terms of the Defense Department. What's the next one that you want to talk about? Department of Homeland Security. Oh, okay. oh I, I was going to say, are you going to get rid of. Is there any that you would completely axe altogether? Yeah, yeah we already talked about agriculture. agriculture. I, I, oh, we're going to get to several well, other. You, you this is going to be a quick conversation. And then you came back and said, well, maybe just a tiny, tiny little thing. Well, no. Okay, yeah. Track I, went, I went from a $280 billion budget to like something that would be like a million dollars to run like one office to do one thing to help with trade assistance. So that he said, it. get rid of agriculture. We, yeah. we, we have, we've talked about. Treasury. We're not getting rid of Treasury. No, but we'd significantly reduce it to essentially managing the mint. I don't even think Secret Service belongs in the Treasury. That's never made sense to me. I actually, the, the reason that it did was because originally the Secret Service was kind of a, I believe, a, a, a counterfeit, counterfeit. Yeah. Uh, ta you know, task force that then over time evolved into what it currently it's, is. It's, which just is a, it's just a strange thing. Department of Homeland Security. Here's what you need to know about the Department of Homeland Security, right? There's a lot of things like U.S. Customs and Border Protection now falls under Department of Homeland Security. You have the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which is the largest part of the budget. And I will say this, I think FEMA is a huge problem. Everybody looks at FEMA as like, well, no, you, you need a, a national disaster response team or whatnot. Okay, but FEMA influences a lot of things with respect to how aid dollars are spent, with respect to how insurance is affected on things. It's like when, when you can actually, John Stossel did a really good report on this where it's like, I can be like a multi-multi-millionaire and I can get special insurance rates to build beachfront property along a hurricane alley like because of FEMA. And so I, I think there's I think there's problems with the way that we do that. I, I again I don't know when it comes to federal emergency management agency. The other thing that I think is a problem is that we've created these conditions to where anytime something happens, every congressman is immediately going out there trying to get it declared a federal um, disaster area, in order to get resources from the federal government. So here's the thing that I would just ask people to consider when you're looking at something like FEMA. Because a lot of people say, well, why wouldn't you want some sort of agency that's responsible for coordinating federal assets and state assets in order to help out with a national disaster? I could actually see a reasonable play for that. But when you now create this incentive structure to declare federal disaster areas and maybe areas that it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Let me give you an example. We had the, we had the earthquake in Mineral, Virginia, right? I, I've been in some pretty big earthquakes. This was not a big earthquake. We didn't have massive like built structural damage and skyscrapers and bridges collapsing. We just didn't have that. We had like chimneys breaking. 
it was declared a federal disaster area. Why? Because the congressman felt obligated, right, to try. We got to support our people. I got to support my constituents. I got to get the money in here. Got to get the resources in here. The question is, is that in order to get the resources to FEMA in the first place, you had to give them this massive budget, you give them this massive power, and then what do you once again do? You cause everybody to look toward the federal government to solve something that really should have been a state issue, really should have been a state issue. So would I completely get rid of FEMA? No. Would I, would I really change with respect to what it's responsible for? Yes. TSA, I would get rid of. I would get rid of the TSA. That also falls within the uh, Homeland Security budget. It's um, crazy. We're so we're also used to getting you know groped at the airport now that it's it's hard to remember a time when you just walked to your gate and yeah. just got on the plane. Do any of you do you remember flying before TSA? I don't. I do you I ver- well, my parents are divorced, so I would fly as an unaccompanied yeah. minor as a kid before nine eleven back yeah. and forth between my my mother and father. Very faint memory of pre 911 style screening but I, I i do i do remember it but it's it's very like you know, if you were picking I, I was like somebody, 6 when 911 happened if you were picking somebody up from the airport you could w- walk right to their gate and yeah. wait for them yep. to get off the airplane i i, I remember my dad would uh, before 911 my dad would be there well if you're as an unaccompanied minor you still get to do that as but, soon as i i walked out of yeah but like none of the type of screening stuff right. and security that yeah. they have today i remember walking out of the gate and he would be literally right there um and yeah today it's 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 a mess what they've got today but i honestly i quite frankly I, I don't think that we should have a Department of Homeland Security in an era of increased weaponization of the federal government against its own people. I, I, so the, the, the argument for it is, um, and, and this, again, this came after 9-11. And so the concern was is that we have all these agencies that are operating independently of one another, and therefore they're not sharing information as well as they could be. So if we put it all within a particular department, then now these agencies have a home that makes sense for the purpose of securing the homeland. The, the question that I would ask is, how's that working out for us? Like, is, are we happy with what's going on at the border? You know, are, are, are we happy with what's going on at the airports? Like, do, do, we, do we think that's become a, a good exchange for the additional money and everything else? And so I, my, my argument is no. Um, I, I don't think that a Department of Homeland Security or adding one more bureaucracy on top of everything else has been overall beneficial uh, to, the, to the, even the coordination of these various agencies. Now, if somebody wants to make an argument you know, fine. I'll, I'll be happy to hear it. But I do think it's, I do think it's interesting that when you look at um, like the obligations versus total budgetary resources within department of Homeland security, you have customs and border patrol, United States coast guard, TSA, us immigrations and customs enforcement. Um, you have citizenship and immigration services, uh, security enforcement and investigations, management directorate, United States Secret Service, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. Who who did all Im- of those? Who, hold on. who did the you know citizenship stuff before Homeland Security was a thing? It was that it was that so that agency or that group would have done it, but then they put it underneath Homeland Security. So like okay. the Coast Guard doesn't fall within Department of Defense. It falls within DHS. Oh, okay. Before right. before DHS was created, the Coast Guard was um, was part of uh, the Department of Transportation. That's right. Department of Trans- yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so to give you an idea, though, U.S. And U.S. Customs and Border Patrol has a $15.89 billion obligations, $28.3 billion in budgetary resources. FEMA has $36 billion and $81 billion, respectively. So FEMA is twice the size of U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. 
and and again, I I kind of look at you as I, I kind of look at these agencies. This is one of the thing. This is one of the problems that happens when you throw all these agencies within a particular department. Is that they look at whichever one has the highest budget within there, and that ends up being a main focus of it. Curtis Horn says, uh, use some of the defense budget and all of the ATF budget to fund and expand the CMP. CMP. Customs and oh, CMP or CBP. Thank you for the uh, uh, thank you for the super chat, Curtis. But we might, we might need some. Uh, all right, so I, I would significantly reduce the 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 size scope, and I don't think we need an overall Department of Homeland Security. Some of those, some of that, we need a Customs and Border Patrol. By the way, thank you for the uh, donation, uh, Joe. He didn't have any message, although his uh, message has balloons. So I'm assuming that it, he's wishing you a happy birthday. Oh uh, uh, yeah. Oh, and it was this first super chat. Thank you very much, Joe. I appreciate it, man. We also appreciate the super chat from uh, Isaiah as well. I can think of two big reasons not to get rid of TSA. I can't. <laughs> but, all right. So let's go ahead and go to our next agency here. Um, I want to go to the Department of Energy. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. I would totally get rid of this. By the way, just to clarify, when when I said I would get rid of the Department of Homeland Security, that doesn't mean I think that we should be getting rid of like Customs and Border Protection. Yeah, yeah, no. I think that some sub agencies within Homeland Security should be removed. But overall, the department, I, I would prefer us to go back to the system that we previously had where all those agencies, you go through yeah. the list and you either act some of them all together. Like, I don't think that we should have a FEMA, for example, or um, some of these agencies should go back to their original responsibilities, like Customs and Border Patrol, I think, I, I think should go back to, you know, it, it's, I, I believe that was actually part of the Department of the Treasury. Like the Coast Guard, part of me thinks that shouldn't that actually be under the Department of Defense? I mean, yeah, I guess you're you splitting could, hairs at that point. But you, the fact is, could, is that yeah. if you if you consolidated these, these uh, part of the problem that we have is we have too many agencies that are kind of doing mutually, not just mutually contradictory, but also mutual overlap where you yeah. just have, have bureaucratic creep where you have so many agencies and well, departments then have, now. Then you have people fighting over what their actual job is. And and like, I look at the Department of Energy and when we look at this, you can click onto it. The agency mission, the mission of the energy department is to ensure America's security and prosperity by addressing its energy, environmental and nuclear challenges through transformative science and, t and technology solutions. So once again, we've put a federal bureaucracy in, in charge of, developing you know, or addressing challenges through the transformative science and technology solutions. When, when you think, when you think innovation, when you think technological advancement, do you really think federal bureaucracy? When I think of cutting edge technology, I think of the DMV. That's right. Bam. They just <laughs> nailed it. Although I have to say our DMV in Culpeper is actually really good. Well, it, it's yeah. the, the only DMV I've ever seen in my life that's actually somewhat efficient. And the but people are super Nice. Like they I are. have never had. Well, very lucky. By the way, Curtis lucky. clarified. He goes the civilian marksmanship program. Okay, I love it, man. I love it. Uh, that's what he's saying. Like cut those budgets, get in the civilian marksmanship program. Um, so here's here's the thing. If you want to see a really good report on this, because I'm not going to deep dive into it. But if you want to see a really good report, go look at what John Stossel um, did on the Department of Energy. Because when you look at it, the Department of Energy's goal, right? You know, to ensure America's security and prosperity by addressing its energy and environmental and nuclear challenges. The Department of Energy makes it more expensive to get U.S. energy. They do. It, it's an, it's a very expensive, um, you know, again, they got 52.57 billion in total obligations right now. And, you know, some of the stuff they have energy programs, national nuclear security administration, environmental and other defense, uh, power marketing administration, department administration. I, I just, I'm sorry. When I look at article one, section eight of the constitution. Now, again, energy wasn't a thing 
uh, in the same way that it that it is now. So if you want to make it, if you want to make the argument that this could fall theoretically within the necessary and proper clause, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to see justification for it because when I look at what the DOE has actually done, I'm sorry, I don't see them as having done a great job in actually securing like U.S. energy independence. We're more dependent um, than we certainly should be at this point. And part of that is because the Department of Energy makes it more difficult for the United States to actually produce our own energy. Well, doesn't the Department of Energy just have a bunch of, I mean, we have all this environmental stuff that has seeped into every single aspect of our government. Yeah. And so now the Department of Energy has nothing to do necessarily with, you know, being energy independent and having good, you know, quality energy you know, to all of its people kind of thing. Instead, it's how, how, how are ways that we can slice and dice this up into a bunch of industrial solar fields and <laughs> incentivize yeah. people to have these giant props in the middle of, you know, fields cutting up all the birds and yeah. screwing up flight patterns. I mean, there is a lot um, that that is involved in this that that is also environmental. Yeah. I got to read this real quick. Claire said, can I be your old daughter's best friend? I'm 15 and I'm 100% sure that any girl raised by Tina is freaking awesome. Hello from Texas. That's <laughs> awesome, Claire. Our daughter's 15 as well. Yeah. One of them. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'm cutting Department of Energy. Anybody want to keep it? No, let's no. get rid of it. Nobody, nobody wants to keep it. Okay. How about let's Ooh, move wouldn't on. Wouldn't it be great if it really was that easy? Nah, yeah. let's get rid of We're it. We're done. done. Well, again, I'm king today. So this is my birthday. I'm, I get to cut what I want. For my birthday, these are my presents. <laughs> All right. Department of Education. Oh, immediate, we don't even need a discussion on that. Immediately remove that entire agency. Agency's mission. The Department of Education's mission is to promote student achievement and preparation for global competitiveness by fostering educational excellence and ensuring equal access. Well, bang up job. Total obligations so much. Uh, how much this agency planned to spend? $111.32 billion in total obligations. Since their inception, what has our ranking in the world done? Has it gone up or has it gone down? I, it's not even that. It's It's... Where on earth in the Constitution is there any sort of authorization for the federal government to have any input on education policy at all? Mm -hmm. At all. There's there's yeah. literally nothing this in Article 1, Section 8 that says that the federal government or Congress has oversight when it comes to the way that people are supposed to be raising their children. Mm -hmm. That's an individual, local, and, and at most state responsibility. Yeah. The federal government should be spending zero dollars on anything related to and, and you know what's funny? The, the way that they do it is the federal government will hand out money, supposedly for education, but there'll be so many strings attached that then suddenly we're going to wake up one day being like, why is it mandated that, you know, they're, they're teaching about transing kids in kindergarten? Oh, because it's in the federal government's, you know, budget. It, it, it's attached, you know, it's it, that, that's attached to all the, you know, the strings that are attached to the money that the federal government. Yes. And that's states. one of the reasons why you're seeing this crap happen all across everywhere, including rural America, because everybody has strings attached to the money. Well, no, I, I think. So they all have to implement it. This is another thing. When you say, I don't think we need a federal department of education, what you're actually what you're actually, what a lot of people hear is like, oh, you don't support education. What they don't hear, and, and here's the way I want people to think about it. What if we had $111 billion 
that all went back to the communities that they were taken from in order to run it through a massive federal bureaucracy. What, what, if, what if we just said for a moment, we said, you know what? We don't need a federal department that's going to come up with specific products or, or, or programs or whatnot that they want to push. We're not going to do that. We're just going to take this money and we're going to allocate it specifically for educational resources. Now, you go ask any teacher in any school right now, would you rather the federal dollars just come back to you in the form of like a blanket grant for education to be determined based off of, you know, how, how your local school district thinks it should be spent? Or do you think it should come with a bunch of strings attached from the federal government? I don't know a single teacher would be like, no, I really want the strings attached from the federal government. But yet we've been told that the only way that you can support. Now, again, I'm not saying that would be the best way to do it. What I'm saying is that if people would start to think it's not $111 billion that then then, then disappears from education, it's $111 billion that now gets spent in education far more effectively and efficiently based off of what people actually want to see out of the program as opposed to what politicians at the federal level think they should see. But that's not the point. The point is that they can control what people are learning and what people are thinking, and that's why there's all the strings attached to the money is because it's basically extortion. You know, we're going to give you back this money, but you're going to have to do this in order to get it. And this goes back to my solution for all of this. Okay, and I've said this before, I'll say it again. I think that the federal government should not be collecting any tax whatsoever. I think the states should be collecting the taxes and then the states should be paying the federal government for the federal side, the federal government's side of what they're required to do. But most of the money like should stay at the state level and that would give states the the ability to tell the federal government to back off of what the state's allowed to do and what they're supposed to do. That requires getting rid of the 16th Amendment because well, you we, described we yeah. the state almost. I mean, the federal government did actually collect taxes before the 16th Amendment, but they collected it through tariffs. Tariffs. Yeah. Well, and and I, I that, those it, weren't handed over by the state. I think but, if you're if you're leveling taxes on your citizen citizens aside from tariffs, okay? If you're leveling taxes, income taxes, or any other tax like that, all of that should be collected at the state level. And then the states will be taxed appropriately from the federal government in order to maintain the federal government for only legitimate functions of government. And that would give states a lot more power with the federal government, which is supposed to be how it is. Yeah. I I, know. I I, look, I have no problem with that arrangement Um, as it, as it currently stands, when I look again, when I look at the Department of Education, the only reason why we actually have it is because of the 16th Amendment, because, again, the, the federal government has no constitutional authority to mandate to states or localities what they should teach in classrooms. So how do they get away with it? 16th Amendment gives them taxing authority that allows them to tax individuals directly. They hold your money hostage. And so they hold your money hostage. You don't get your money. Ba- How many times have I seen this in the state legislature? Well, Nick, we've got to go with this. Otherwise, we're not going to get the federal funds. Nick, we're leaving those dollars on the table. Like, yeah, but those dollars come with a lot those of go- strings dollars attached. come with strings attached. Right? You're, you're not just you're not just getting your money back. You're giving something up to get your money back. That's problematic. So why don't we just get rid of the agency taking our money, right? Or, or justifying the, the taking of our money and instead allow it to stay within the communities. Now, if, if you want to come up with a better way to allocate that at the state level, you're constitutionally permitted to do that. But I don't see a role for this at the federal government. So I say ask the Department of Education. I, I would get rid of the entire thing, mostly because the overwhelming majority of the Department of Education's budget is basically going to subsidize 
college indoctrination at this point. Yeah. There is no reason as conservatives that we should be funding our opposition. And it's time for conservatives to recognize that the university structure that we have right now, 90% of the university structure is actively working to, to indoctrinate students into believing effectively a form of Marxism. Like name me one example of the left using taxpayer money to fund their ideological opposition. Yeah. There's not a single one. How much money does NAGR or Students for Life or any other conservative organization get from taxpayers? Oh, yeah. Nothing. And yet conservatives willingly elect people to office who then vote to fork over their taxpayer funding to pay for. I, I mean, I, I went to, to public school and I went to college and, and I can tell you. I have learned more from watching YouTube videos than I did from going and spending three and a half years. I graduated early three and a half years getting an undergrad degree in, in poli sci and history, like the classes that they take. It's just, it's just Marxism at this point, unless you're, you're going to medical school or engineering or something like that, where you're actually providing like a tangible skill that you actually need to be educated on yeah. in order to, to provide it. All of the humanities, liberal arts, all that stuff. It's great topics. I love it huge fan of it but the university system has been completely colonized by marxists and we're even, funding even in those even in those like medical everything and it's, it's increasingly in there as well and and we are funding our ideological opposition there is no re again it, it it's a, a third of the entire department of of education's funding is just pell grants well here, here's what people also <laughs> here's what people also understand so with the in in 2023 like i'm looking at a wiki page right now for all these departments if you were to ask most people, when when did the um, Federal Department of Education start in U.S. history? I'm willing to bet you're going to get people saying, you know, the 1800s, the early 1900s, 1979. Year you were born. 1979, the year I was born. I was born for the purpose of destroying. No, <laughs> <laughs> no but it, it again, this is the part where people, again, don't look at it as we're cutting funding from education. What we're doing is we're taking away a bureaucracy that is negatively influencing and impacting our education system and giving it back into the actual consumers of the education. Yeah, that, if, you, if you look at the salaries, well, some of these bureaucrats are make, raking in money while, while the teachers are still, you know, making Hardly well, and, anything. And Angel D, thank you for the the uh, super chat. Says, can we really trust what people think we need to teach in schools anymore? Hard to be optimistic about what about that with family units being attacked and values being replaced by deeply entrenched wokeism. No, absolutely. And this is one of the problems when we have these federal agencies. What they do is they provide a mechanism for politicians to use the agency in order to push their political ideology or agenda on people, regardless of whether or not they want it. it I, I go through this all the time right? All the time. I want parents to be able to make more of these decisions. And some people say, but some parents will make bad decisions. Yes. But what's the alternative? The alternative is you're going to hand over massive amounts of power to state or, or federal agencies. In this case, a federal agency, federal department in the hopes that they'll make better decisions. I, I'm sorry. What evidence do I have to suggest that that's true? And their track record is already trash. Well, and you already saw like the best, the best own on this one was Thomas Massey because when Betsy DeVos was uh, made the head of the Department of Education, 
Democrats lost their minds. Like, this is horrible. And Thomas Massey said, I agree, this is horrible. We, you know, join my bill to make sure that Betsy DeVos cannot have any say over your child's education. And he had all these liberals on Twitter and whatnot, like retweeting, like, yeah, yeah, Massey. It was a bill to get rid of the Department of Education. But Massey was proven the point. It's like, when you have a massive federal bureaucracy that has this degree of influence over your child's education, that is going to be controlled by whoever is at the head of the bureaucracy. So this assumption that, oh, no, it's only going to be the best science and the best technology. No, it'll be based off of the whims of the people in charge at the time. Yeah. So let's I mean, the look. kids, they're basically a bunch of guinea pigs. They're they're experimenting their education, you know, philosophies on them. And when then they completely are disastrous, then they make a few adjustments and they experiment some more. Yeah. All right. So we're Department of Transportation gone. Next one, housing and urban development. All right. Anybody They're wanna not going to like my take on that. Anybody want to take take a, okay, I'm not going to like your take? No, I'm not going to no, like your take? they. Oh, they. General they public. Gonna. So the, the, this I came have, around. I'll bet you our audience likes September it. September 9th, 1965. It was part of the Great Society, and it was part of this federal this federal program to once influence the way that, um, you know, cities developed and whatnot. We could probably talk a little bit about Detroit on this one. But here's here's the mission. Housing and urban development, commonly known as HUD. HUD's mission is to create strong, sustainable, inclusive communities and quality affordable homes for all. HUD is working to strengthen the housing market to bolster the economy and protect consumers, meet the need for quality, affordable rental homes, utilizing housing as a platform for improving quality of life, build inclusive and sustainable communities free from discrimination, and transform the way HUD does business. So part of their mission statement is to transform the way they do business. What, what does that even mean? But I, I look at everything else and I'm thinking, we need a federal bureaucracy for this. Like this is, we need a federal bureaucracy to tell cities how to develop. That's, how's, hey, how did that work out, by the way, with things like the interstate system in Detroit, where a bunch of federal dollars came in and, and essentially destroyed you know, elements of downtown Detroit because they decided, oh, well, we need more infrastructure projects in here. Like, I, I don't I don't understand why anybody would look at the federal government and say, you know what? I don't think we know how to build our own city. We need a federal agency to come in here and incentivize and to tell us how to make strong, sustainable, inclusive communities with quality, affordable homes for all. The federal government, the government is one of the biggest things pushing things like rent control, which is why you have areas in like New York City where you have more abandoned like rooms than you do homeless people. Because there's no longer any incentive to be able to upkeep a building because of government policies. So I'm sorry, I don't trust the government to actually to actually provide for any of this. This just ends up being another way that a federal department gets to put gets to take your money and then give it to the people under the contractors and the and the people with the best lobbyists un, under under the cause of, oh, we're making inclusive communities and they're more sustainable. And they're uh, I mean, sorry. this is just so that politicians can go to ribbon cuttings and like hold a little shovel in their hand but, and pretend they're doing something. By the way, have you seen the building? Have you actually seen the building for housing and urban development? It in looks Washington, like brutalist Stalinist architecture. It does. Actually, it doesn't look like brutalist Stalinist architecture. It looks like brutalist, like, like Brezhnev era yeah. architecture, because at least under Stalin, they had Soviet realism, which was like trying to look like classical style. Yeah. All, all I can say is like the, the one thing I can say about a lot of the architecture in DC is that it's actually, especially the more classical stuff is actually rather beautiful until you get to the department of housing and urban development. And then it looks like a concrete cracker Jack box. Like it's, it's ugly. Right? 
It, so, it, it, again, it looks like the Soviets designed it, yeah. I, I which tend makes to think total sense because it's central planning. I mean, when it comes to I, architecture from the 60s and 70s and even 80s is awful. Oh, no. Architecture post 1930s or 40s is is all universally bad. It's like, so ugly. Our architecture died after Art Deco. That was the last great era of designing buildings. And now ever since then, they've tried to suck the soul and life out of buildings around you. It's 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 all I mean, it's 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 almost like another form of nihilism, but that's a whole another topic for another day i would get rid of the entire department i don't think that there's a single reason that the federal government nope. should have any say whatsoever over housing policy in the united states yeah. and for anybody to say oh well you know we need this because you know think about all the poor people that you know need assistance to find homes or need public housing public housing in the united states has been an abysmal failure go look at cabrini green yeah. if you want proof of that there's no reason that the federal government should be spending a single cent on anything related to the Department of Housing and Urban Development. What a bang up job they did with housing and <laughs> urban development. Go to any urban center in this country right yeah. now and see like it's And look at the projects. The word, think, oh, inner, the word inner city is now a euphemism for 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 decaying ghetto for crying out loud. Like like who do you think is responsible for this? We did a why minute actually once on how um, the shortest highway in the United States Detro destroyed Detroit. Mm -hmm. Well, part of the reason, actually, this gets to the Department of Transportation, which I think we'll get to it at, at, uh, yeah. um, in, in the future. But like, it's federal bureaucrats that are responsible for so many of the things that have led to the destruction of inner cities in the United States. It wasn't that long ago. It was a half century ago or more that inner cities in the United States were actually the most beautiful parts of cities. And now they're completely destroyed. They're decaying husks. So no, there's no reason that we should have a department of, of housing and urban development whatsoever. No. They don't even do their job right. I think, I think we get rid of the whole thing. Uh, next is department of commerce. We're going to have to try to like race through these. I'm going to go only faster. Have, like, 25 more minutes and no, we're just going to go over department of commerce 1903 budget of about 16.3 billion dollars the the mission of the agency <laughs> the mission of the department is to create the conditions for economic growth and opportunity wasn't that the wasn't that part of the mission statement of the department of treasury as well i you know i've got a better idea how about that be the mission statement of individuals in the united states there we calvin go. coolidge once said that the business of america is business yeah. why do we need a federal department to what would you re repeat the phrase again? Federal department in order the mission of the department is to create the conditions for economic growth and opportunity. Yeah. Here, 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 you want to know what those conditions should be? What? Let's remove 90% of all the taxes and regulations in the United <laughs> States. Boom. There's your conditions met. Well, you look at, you look at what it is. All right. So, so what is, what is this, what does commerce actually do? All right. So you got the national telecommunications and information administration. Export, you got the national, bank. you got the national Institute for standards and technology. You got departmental departmental management. That's $467 million. Holy crap. All right. Uh, national oceanic and atmospheric administration, U S patent and trademark office. Oh, okay. This is, there's actually a really interesting discussion in, in kind of like libertarian circles on the whole idea of intellectual property and whatnot. But let's just say for right now, fine. You can keep the patent and trademark office bureau of the census. That's under department of commerce. I don't that, think it should be under department. That should of be commerce. like under department of interior. I yeah. Feel like economic development administration gone, get rid of it. International trade administration. Bureau of Industry and Security, $130 million, $103 million. Bureau of Economic, $97 million for the Bureau of Economic Analysis. What exactly are they analyzing that makes it so damn expensive? Minority Business Development and National Technical Information Service. I, I'm sorry, I'm looking at this going, why do you need a $50, $50 million budget for that? 
Why do you need a, oh gosh, I, I'm sorry. I don't think we need a department of commerce. I will also say this is not under Department of Commerce, but it's related to it. We need to get rid of the Export-Import Bank. Yes. That, that doesn't answer, if I recall, to any specific department. No. But that's a whole other agency that just needs to go. All right. Let's go to the next one. Okay, also, so, the Federal Reserve. So anybody anybody want to keep the Department of Commerce? Anybody see a reason no. why yeah, we need a Federal Department of Commerce? All right. Gone. All right. Environmental Protection Agency. Immediately gone. gone next cut. question. Next question. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Okay. All right. I want to play devil's advocate here for just a second. No. Oh, no, no, I'm going to play it. Our mission is to protect human health in the environment. First of all, I, okay. they don't care about human health. Okay, whatever. Clearly, they do not care so, about human health. So let me ask you a question. The federal government does have some jurisdiction with respect to interstate trade as well as um, federal law. So theoretically, if you had one state allowing an industry to pollute and dumping it all in the Mississippi and running it down, right? The question would be, what mechanism would you use? What mechanism would the federal government use to adjudicate that problem between the two states? Would you just use federal law enforcement? Like, I'm, I'm with you. I would get rid of the EPA, but I am saying that there are certain things that the EPA Isn't does. is the EPA responsible for some of these um, horrible yes. incidents? Yeah, go look up the Colorado River that anyway, turns wait, yellow. Real quick, you know the answer, I think. You know the answer, I think. Which U.S. president gave us the Environmental Protection Agency? You can't answer. FDR. Okay, FDR, good guess. I'm going to say Nixon. Nixon. Richard Nixon nice. gave us the Environmental Protection Agency. That's right, for all you... See, he uh, is a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, so I, I would say this. This is the only part that I want to make sure that we we make a distinction here, is that there, there are some areas where I can look at it and I can say, okay, these are certain problems that need to be um, need to be addressed but this would just be like an environmental law section under the FBI or environmental section underneath some sort of federal law enforcement agency. I don't think you need the Environmental Protection Agency. And, and like you said, the EPA has already been a source of problem for other things. So I'm getting rid of it and I'm moving, I'm moving the legitimate portions of its functions under federal law enforcement. Anybody want to keep it? No. All right, EPA. Get gone. rid of it. All right, Department of Labor. Get rid of it. Get rid of the entire Department of Labor. Department of Labor started in 1913. What a what a shocker! Right during the Progressive Era, right? Yeah, that's a that's this is another example of conservatives willingly funding their opposition. Yeah, I'm sorry, but like, I, and and this has become a bigger issue in in recent years with you know the rise of of populism on the right. But I'm sorry, labor unions overwhelmingly it's like 95 plus percent yeah. of their donations and endorsements go to democrats there's no reason what's and the department of labor is effectively a federal agency a federal department whose effective mission statement is they don't say this but their mission statement is effectively to promote inside with labor unions there's yeah. no reason for conservatives to be funding the opposition again there's so many examples of this of of instances where the federal government is spending money to promote left-wing interests or organizations or or um, interest groups that that fund our ideological opponents. It's and because they found we a loop just go cycle. along with it. They found a loop cycle. Basically, these um, you've got you've got these labor unions that that are. Uh, basically extorting funds out of the federal government they're they're fighting you know fighting with taxpayers basically well, on that no no i'm talking about public sector yeah you're talking about public sector public so. sector i have no problem with private sector whatever as long as they as long as everything um as long as there's no leg up given by the government but 
What I find interesting is that you've got these politicians who receive money from the labor unions and then they push the money back out to the labor unions and then they receive money from, and it's just this. Oh yeah. It's, cycle. it's a, it's a funnel. We see the same thing with like, you know, Planned Parenthood and other, and other institutions like that. But when I look at the department of labor, here's the agency mission, right? From 1913 to foster promote. Well, this is their current agency mission to foster, promote and develop the welfare of the wage earners, job seekers and retirees of the United States, improve working conditions, advance opportunities for profitable employment and assure work related benefits and rights. This is what I love. Assure work related benefits and rights. We already have a court system to adjudicate contract law. We don't need an entire federal department. What, what Christian said was accurate. What the Department of Labor was set up to do was essentially tip the scales in the favor of labor unions. Now, it, it, people ask me, Nick, are you against labor unions? No, I'm not against labor unions. I'm against public sector labor unions because the, the whole idea of a labor union is we as workers decide that, okay, we're providing a benefit to the company in the form of our labor. The company is providing a benefit to us in the form of wages for our labor. And so the idea is, is that labor organizes in order to try to push for better wages and better conditions. And then the employer can choose whether or not they want to meet those conditions. And, and how does the employer or the business owner make that decision? They make the decision based off of whether or not they can replace their current labor force. Is it more advantageous for them to pay higher wages or to make better conditions based off of what the labor union is asking for, or can they more easily replace them with somebody else to do the job? That's and, and assuming the, though that these labor unions haven't lined the pockets of some politician in order to create a regulation well, that gives them the leg up thank on these. You. That's the whole point I was owners. trying to get to. Like oh, the, okay. <laughs> I wasn't leaving that part out. I was saying that if you look at it, if you look at it in the, in, in a, in a free market economy, laborers can say, Hey, listen, we don't think we're being treated well here. And if we're not going to get treated better, we're going to leave. And now you're not going to be able to run your company by the same token. If those laborers labor was worth what, you know, was, was worth as much as some people think it is, they wouldn't need the company in the first place. They would just do the labor at their own home or what. So obviously it's about understanding that both sides are providing a benefit. The problem is exactly what you articulated. And that is what happens when one side of the equation, whether it's the business owner or the labor union goes to the government for special treatment. And that's what happened. The Department of Labor is essentially set up to give special treatment to labor versus the employees or the employers. And that's problematic. Like, I don't, I don't want business owners going to the government, getting special regulations, engaging in cronyism to give themselves an advantage over labor, right? And I don't want the labor doing the same thing, but we have an entire department dedicated to it. So I'm sorry. Cut I, it. I say, I say, cut it. Cut I don't, it. I don't think, again, I don't think you need a, if, if you wanted to do this at the state level, I would see a clear constitutional authority for you to be able to do it based off of your state constitution. I don't see it at the federal level. All right. So that's gone. All right. We got a few more here and then we're going to, we're going to wrap it up. Well, I, I, then I, I think briefly at the conclusion, you should go through some of the independent agencies. Yeah. Like, for example, the Federal Reserve is an independent agency. Yeah, yeah. Well, don't, don't worry. Okay. We'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. <laughs> My gosh. All right. Um, let me see. What do we got? Health and Human Services, founded in 1953. All right. Health and Human Services. Are we keeping this? Oh, my gosh. No, I, I get I, rid of that one, too. This is, when I hear that, I'm going, to wait a minute. Aren't these the people that put out all that propaganda in our cartoons during, like, the Bugs Bunny era, you know, talking about? I don't know. Anyway, there's all this propaganda in the form of cartoons. I don't know the last time you oh, guys have talking watched. about, um, what was it? Uh, DDT. There's that one. And then there's also, oh gosh, there, there were a few others where, 
Um, well, let's let's look at what their mission statement is. It is the mission of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to enhance and protect the health and well-being of all Americans. We fulfill that mission by providing for effective health and human services and fostering advances in medicine, public health, and social services. Again, the thing that always bothers me is when these departments act as if they're at the forefront of all of these industries and they're the ones leading the charge in innovation. I'm sorry, government agencies are almost never Never leading innovation. That's usually the private sector. To give people an idea of what's under Department of Health and Human Services, there's a few sub-agencies that answer to the Department of Health and Human Services, like the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Yes, let's cut it off. All three of those things need to go away, like immediately. When you look and see... I mean, over the past three years, it, it shouldn't be I'm, any anybody with a brain should realize at this point, like, I'm sorry, NIH should be gone. <laughs> CDC should be gone. Like, like these are federal agencies that have like, like actively worked to, to just make people's lives miserable. Well, over except the last for the people years. that they made very, very wealthy. Yeah. And I don't care about making them more wealthy. Like I, I I care about the fact that eventually we're going to run into financial Armageddon if we don't do something. But you know what? Unfortunately, billionaires were created over COVID. Unfortunately, the problem is, is that this is ultimately still a question of if you're king for a day, because we all know that we're never going to be able to fix any of these problems in terms of eliminating so many of these. Like, like I'm old enough to remember when Mitt Romney, not exactly the most conservative stalwart there ever was, lost the 2012 presidential election because he said that he wanted to cut funding for Big Bird. Like, yeah. like we are deal. I've said this before. We're dealing with pathologically unserious people here within the federal government. There is no appetite to cut a single cent of spending for anything within the federal budget. Anything. Well, we can't even cut federal funding for Big oh, Bird. Okay, okay. We, we can black pill everyone later. All right. We're going to go through the nice part now, which is what if what if we could do this stuff? Okay. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid um, is is like the the vast portion of of this program. And this is the part two, just like social security, right? Cause department of social security is another one on here. Whenever you talk about any sort of changes to these, they become like sacred. Like it, you want people to die. You want people to starve. You want people to, you know, not be able to have access to healthcare. A- again, here's what I, I, I had a lady once come to my, um, she wanted to talk to me she was very upset with me cause I didn't want to expand Medicaid, which was basically an, an expansion of Obamacare in Virginia. And, and, she was talking about how desperately this was needed. And I was like, okay. I said, I completely understand that people need access to quality and affordable health care. I don't think the government is especially good at ensuring quality, um, affordability or access. Like maybe access is the one thing they do. But the thing is, if you have access to something that's not quality and not affordable, what does that even mean? No, all it did is give you access to, um, health insurance, but the health care is still very inaccessible. Well, so I asked her, I said, what is your, what is your biggest problem? Like if, if we're really talking, if we're really going to be serious about Medicaid and Medicare, and we're really going to offer this up as like, this is the safety net. Here's what you need to understand. First of all, it's no longer a safety net. We, we've, we've, and this, this happens with every, so, you know, quote unquote safety net we have is that it always starts off with, we're going to set up a program for the destitute. And then the definition of what constitutes destined and who actually applies for it always increases. And the reason why it always increases is because you got to have a cutoff somewhere. So if the cutoff is, you know, if you're making um, poverty level wages, okay, well now if I am making poverty level wages and I make a hundred dollars more a month, 
Is that worth more to me than the benefits I get from the government's, the social program? No. Well, then now I'm disincentivized to, to increase my wealth unless I can get a big enough jump to where it actually makes sense. But the problem is, is that because that same federal government that's managing Medicare and Medicaid also has things like Intella laws, which require hospitals, and most people think this sounds nice until you think about it, requires hospitals to see you and provide you medical services regardless of your ability to pay. Now, again, you might think what sort of cold-hearted human being would turn away somebody that walks into the ER with a gunshot wound or demand to see their insurance card first. I'm going to tell you right now, I think the vast majority of doctors and nurses would actually help stabilize that person first. That's not the problem. The problem is my mother, who's been a nurse for, for over 40 years, will tell you, is the people that will come into the emergency room because they want a blanket, they want a sandwich, they want to watch TV, they want to be seen, and they will show up day after day after day, and they are required by law to treat this as if, no, 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 this isn't a person that just wants a blanket and a free sandwich. This is a person that is, you know, has serious medical issues that we have to stop what we're doing from the other people that we're seeing in order to make sure that they get seen as well. And my mom once said, like, if you would have put in a $5 copay, you would stop so much of this. And a $5 copay would not prevent anybody from getting necessary medical care that they actually need, but it would prevent a lot of people that are abusing this system. And we have, it is because of government intervention. If you are upset about quality, if you are upset about affordability, if you are upset about access, I can point you to all of the various government interventions into the healthcare system that have made it so, whether it be through licensing things, which gives special uh, privileges to the American Medical Association with respect to setting up medical schools, whether it's licensing and registration requirements that prevent people who are capable of providing basic services from being able to do so, otherwise they'll get sued, right? Whether it's prescription drug laws, I mean, you name it. The reason why anybody is frustrated with the American healthcare system is not because of a lack of government interference. It's because of an excess of it. And so when I say things like the Department of Health and Human Services has, in my opinion, been a net, a net detriment to the provision of healthcare services in this country, that's why. That's why. Federal bureaucracies are not known for their ability to innovate and adapt quickly to ever-changing procedures, technologies, and whatnot. No, what do they do? They come up with very specific guidelines, which are, which are always risk-averse, by the way, right? And then it's all like, if you do these things, we will give you money. Well, now, are you encouraging the hospital to innovate? Are you encouraging the hospital to do all the other things? Are you encouraging medical professionals to, to innovate? No, you're encouraging them to do whatever the government says to do in order to get the, the guaranteed money from the government. And that's, that's a huge part of the problem. Um, so... I, I look at these services and, and look, I, I can see national institutes of health. I'm sorry. I don't, I, I, I think they proved to be horrible during COVID um, food and drug administration. This also goes back to the USDA too, on some of the stuff where it's always like, Oh no, no, these, these, these agencies are going to ensure your protection. Okay. Well, I think that's a dubious claim when I look at some of the things that have happened, when I look at things like the food pyramid and, and what I find out is that, oh, you didn't, you didn't tell me what was most healthy for me based off of the best available science. You told me what was healthy for me based off of what the industries that have the best lobbyists wanted you to say, right? So it, when are you held accountable for that? I, I'm tired of people telling me, oh, without this agency, there'd be no healthcare. Without this agency, there'd be no safety protocols. Without this agency... When they fail, who holds them accountable? When, where, where do I see the accountability within the marketplace? Well, there isn't one because you're not the FDA's customer. You're not. Politicians are. 
All right. Got a super chat from Rob I'd like to read real quick. Yeah. Uh, what good is the DOT when NAFTA exempts foreign drivers while we have destroyed the lower class's greatest path to business ownership with DOT regulations like electronic driver logs? Happy birthday. Hope you got a mug. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. No, I, I think it's it's interesting. Department of Transportation, the one thing that you could potentially use to to justify the Department of Transportation would have to do with interstate highways. And, um, and and railroads potentially. Yeah, interstate highways, railroads, and and me. Mm, I don't think you could even really claim ports, you, waterways, I, navigable waterways. Mm-hmm. Um, you you could say that there's some there's some role right there, but as you said, this ends up being a problem when you set up a free trade agreement. Which again, I am a free trade supporter. I know that makes some people mad, but I I want I want Americans to be able to trade with whoever they want, provided that we're not trading with a government that's you know, openly hostile or, or to the United States or using slave labor and stuff like I generally speaking, I don't want to interfere in your ability to buy the products that you want to buy them from. But to your point, we, we set up these contradictory rules where we're now it's like, how are you going to have less regulations when you're coming from a foreign country than if you're a domestic driver? No, that's a good question. I mean, I think that the, it's a great point. The compromise, I say this, like, you know, <laughs> the compromise that, that I, I, I would say is that like, you could keep some of the responsibilities of the Department of Transportation without having it as a department. For example, some some of the stuff that, that you talked about with like waterways or railroads or highways, you, you could just put that under the Department of Commerce. Well, we got rid of Department of Commerce. <laughs> well, then, you know what you probably end up doing then is is you merge the two together and you keep whatever whatever stuff within those two that's actually relevant. Yeah. And then you you simply rename that, you know, Department of Commerce or you keep that as the Department of Transportation. But the the, the point is, is that, I mean, Department of Transportation's budget is one hundred and forty five billion. And you know what a huge chunk of that is, is stuff that, quite frankly, should be privatized anyway. Yeah. Um, like there there's so now, granted, um, Department of Transportation does not, if I recall, oversee um, Amtrak which is in a, uh, an independent federal agency that quite frankly, I think the federal government should divest itself from. It needs to be privatized. And if it can't survive, then guess what? It can't survive. Yeah. There's no reason for taxpayers to be subsidizing Amtrak at all, especially if you're living in Kansas, right? Amtrak it's not serves, cheap either. And I've, I've no. ridden Amtrak and you know, you know who Amtrak serves the most? Politicians. Politicians and liberal voters. Yeah. Once again, Democrats get into office, the left gets into office, and you know what they do? They use the federal government to fund and reward the people who elect them. Republicans and conservatives get into office, and what they do is they try to convince the left that they're not actually really the evil, mean, fascist bigots that the left claims that they are. Yeah. If if the right spend as much attention to their own base as they do trying to court the viewership of MSNBC we wouldn't have some of the problems that we have right now at the federal yeah. level. We got, we got two more to go through. And I think we're going to uh, veterans affairs. We can definitely talk about, but I, I'm, we're going to go these quick because I want to go through the list here uh, and kind of do a wrap up. Um, where was it? Uh, Department of the interior. I actually would keep the department of, in, of, of interior. Too. Okay. Uh, and, and here's the reason why it was actually founded in the 1840s. Yeah. It's, it's an older department pre civil war. And, there's a few things that you could argue the Department of Interior should be overseeing, like, for example, conducting the census. We talked about this earlier, that that, that yeah. should fall under the Department of Interior. Um, I think, isn't census actually Homeland Security? Uh, I it thought, is. Na- no, it no, is no, no, no. It's commerce. 
It was commerce. Is it commerce? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was commerce. Anyway, point is, is that I, I actually think that that should fall under the Department of the Interior. Here's another reason why we should keep the interior. Now, granted, I want to still cut huge yeah, amounts Yeah, yeah, I get it. You don't want 70,000 employees like it currently has. No. And part <laughs> of the reason that they have that is because of all the federal lands yeah. that, that are owned. Now, here's the thing. Even though I, I think we should be selling off like 90% of federal lands, for example, Agreed. it's like over 90% of Nevada is owned by the federal government. I yeah. think it should go to the people of Nevada and more importantly, it shouldn't even just go to the state. It should go to the people of Nevada. The federal government should be selling those lands to whoever wants to buy Where them. Where else and are they going them. to store the aliens? Yeah. I, but the fact is, is that there will always be federal lands in general. Even if even if I had my way, right, and we sold off as much as we possibly could and we divested as much federal lands as we could, there will still be some federal lands somewhere that is maintained for whatever reason. I don't think it should be 90% of some states, right? But yeah. there, there, there will be some. Something. And so obviously there there should be an agency that manages those federal lands. So I, I do think there's a legitimate role that you could argue even under Article, you know, our Article one, Section eight of the Constitution that would justify a, a Department of the Interior, again, for maybe conducting things like running those federal lands or overseeing the census. So that's actually one of the few departments that I think we should keep. But I still think that there's no reason that there should be over 70,000 employees of it. Though. No, and I could see that. And and I would, I would still keep the department of state. I would still keep uh, the department of justice. Although I definitely, there's a lot of sub portions of the department of justice. I would that eliminate I would the FBI entirely. The FBI has become completely weaponized against its own people. Uh, so here's, point. here's the question though. Like there, there is a constitutional justification for federal law enforcement. Because sure. So start a new agency. I mean, okay. I, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't We're supposed to be cutting agencies, Christian, not there's, adding there's new a lot, ones. <laughs> no, no, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that I look at with um, like federal law enforcement that I don't understand why, like, I don't think we need an ATF. I, that's another one that we should um, I don't think we need an ATF. I, I, I understand a federal bureau of investigation because or, originally the FBI didn't even carry firearms. Like their, their job was to investigate. Oh, I get their mission well, statement. The, well, wait a second. Their job was to investigate federal crime and then actually work with state and local law enforcement. And they needed state and local law enforcement because the state and locals were armed and the FBI wasn't. Um, That's not what the FBI does anymore. No, though. I, I know that uh, what I'm saying is, is that I can look at an agency and decide whether or not you need to reform it or, or whether or not you just need to get rid of it. And the first question I ask is what's the constitutional justification for this? I look at a lot of the ones that we talked about department of ed, housing and urban development, um, you know, department of energy, department of commerce. I don't see an article one section eight justification. These, these agencies exist because we have a 16th amendment and the federal government has a budget and they want to tell States what to do. And this is the way that they, they use the agency to basically extort money in order to get States to do what they want. Like do what we want. And here's some money. Don't do what we want. And you don't get the money. Right. So that's the thing. Like I, I see again, I, we, we need a department of justice. I would significantly reduce the amount of you know law enforcement within the DOJ um, especially on things like the ATF. Like I, I do not understand the ATF. Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. firearms. Yeah. Why? Why? Why even? Why did somebody think this was a necessary thing? I don't know. Tobacco, not illegal. Well, it, it's about it's about managing various laws with respect to who can you know trafficking and and, and things like that. So it, it what a lot of people don't understand is that because certain local and state laws, which should be the responsibility of the local and state, they will raise taxes so much that there's actually a tobacco trafficking, you know, market in New York city. Um, the other thing is too, is, I mean, I don't have the specific things for the ATF right here, like as far as their budget and whatnot, but um, let me see where we can find it here. 
Yeah, I'm sure if we went into it, we'd, we would find what their original justification was for... ATF sounds like some kind of agency that was propped up in order to like catch Al Capone or something. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know its origin. Out there's, there's no reason the federal government. I mean, the federal government should not be regulating tobacco or alcohol no. at all. I mean, th there's a reason we have the 21st Amendment, right? And they definitely should not be regulating firearms at all. I think so. I think we've hit all the big. I think we've hit all the departments, right? These are the big departments. A lot of the, you have independent agencies. You have the departments, then you have all the the sub stuff under those departments. When it gets to I'm an independent agency, we're not going to get to all of them because there's just too many. But I, I want to give everybody like an idea of some of these ones, like the National Science Foundation. Nope. Federal Communications Commission. Probably not. Railroad Retirement Board. Um, NASA. Eh. Um, Small Business Administration. I would get rid of. You'd get rid of NASA. I <laughs> Why? I, Why? Get, I don't think I'd totally get rid of NASA, but uh, honestly, I don't understand things like that. It, it's not the one like agency for international development, USAID. I would get rid of that in a heartbeat that USAID. If you really dig into that, I've got a, I've got a buddy that was writing about this and we were talking about federal agencies and he's not exactly like a hardcore conservative. He just doesn't like fraud, waste and abuse. And he's like the, no, the one you need to get rid of a USAID because USAID, which has a, uh, I think it's around $49 billion. He goes, there's nothing more lucrative than working for USAID and then getting out and starting your own, you know, nonprofit, you know, group that's going to then get a contract from USA in order to encourage Ethiopians to wear shoes, right? It's the, the sort of stuff like that, where there's so much cronyism between the aid community and government agencies hand like distributing USAID that he goes, it, it's a get rich quick scheme for certain people. We should not be spending a cent on foreign aid to any country in the entire world right now when we're running a budget deficit of $1.5 trillion yeah. annually. There, I, I would argue that we shouldn't be spending a cent on foreign aid even if we were running a budget surplus, but but w there's literally no justification for us to be sending money we do not have yeah. to other foreign countries. Yeah. Small, small business administration too, they're like, oh my gosh, you don't wanna help small businesses? No, I don't want small businesses constantly going to a federal agency which then picks and chooses the winners based off of your race, based off of your ethnicity, based off of your sex. And here's the other, here's or the question I have. your ESA score. Here, here's the question I have for, for uh, as you know, small business administration and, and people are like, well, they give loans. Those loans could still exist. They don't need a federal agency to go get them. They could still exist. The, the problem is, is that you see this within federal contracting. Well, they, they will require so many small business set asides in order to award you a contract. And what you do is you have people that essentially set up fake consulting businesses, and then they make the CEO, you know, a minority female minority female. And now I have a business. And what happens is, is that, okay, now I, I put this person on this contract. They get a certain amount of the, the business on the contract because I'm obligated that maybe 30% or 20% of the overall uh, uh, dollars go to small businesses. And that's what they do. Um, another thing that you all, here's, here's an honest question I have for the federal government right now. If I want to get a set aside for a minority owned small business or for a woman owned small business, so I've been on several federal contracts, right, where, where we were writing proposals and you had to have a woman-owned small business represented as part of the obligation. Can I, I now, can I now identify as a woman and get the small business set aside? Can sure. I now identify as a woman? Like I, every male-owned small business out there, you should immediately, if you're going after federal contracts or state contracts that have specific set-asides for women-owned small businesses, you should immediately say, I identify as a woman and dare them to tell you you're not. Oh, yeah. 
Seriously. Absolutely. You, you that's wanna, how you, you wanna, break the system really fast. That's how you break it. You want to break the system, have a bunch of dudes that own small businesses immediately go up and say, I want that small, uh, that woman owned small business set aside because I identify as a woman and then dare the state and federal bureaucrats to say, no, you're not. And, and for, and for everybody too, on the women's side, that's been encouraging this. Okay. That's, that's the consequence. I asked this question of a colleague in the it's general assembly. It's not fair anyway to have any kind of set aside for women. It's that's not equality. That's I, preferential yeah. treatment. So let's look at some of these other ones. U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. No. Millennial Millennium Challenge Corporation. The heck is that? No. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. No. Corporation for National and Community Service. No. Securities and Exchange Commission. Oh, give me a break. All right. And uh, thank you, Andrea, for the super chat. She goes, happy birthday, Nick. New to your channel. I'm with your friend. Uh, Anarcho-capitalism, the way forward. Defund them all in the Fed. <laughs> oh, by the way, can we just say right now, yes, we all agree with Indian the Federal Reserve. Yes. Hey, my license plate on my car says in Fed. It's so. true. <laughs> um, US, U.S. Agency for Global Media. Yeah, gone. Um, oh, gosh, what's another one? National Archives and Records Administration. I keep the National Archives. They, they keep the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence behind glass. Commodity Futures Trading Commission. No. Gulf Coast Ecosystem Restoration Council. No. Export Import Bank of the United States. Hell no. Hell no. no don't, don't just eliminate that. Write it into law that no such thing will ever be created. Oh my ever gosh. Again. That's where you get rid of it and then you like, you know, criminally Salt charge the people. Earth. Okay, here's an interesting one. Here's the interesting one. The Peace Corps. I say no. I say no. I, I don't I don't think we need a federally run Peace Corps. I, I think the private sector can do plenty of that. Um, let me see. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Absolutely no. Nope. Get rid of it. Um, federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. The heck? Cut. Oh, my gosh. It's funny how some of these Oh, things- here's another one. National Endowment for the Humanities. Cut. Gone. Absolutely gone. Same thing for yeah. National Endowment for the Arts. Gone. Gone. Yeah, goodbye. This is, this is just like the Kennedy Center. Like, why does the federal government need to be the one running that? Oh, remember when the Kennedy Center laid off their staff during COVID and then took yeah. COVID funds in order to, you know, they, they, they took, you know, the equivalent of like PPP loans or something like yeah. that. Um, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Like, it, 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 why does that... Why do, does the federal government you need know, to be funding that? Type do you want to know what the budget is for the Kennedy Center? And by the way, this is another thing I can't stand. They're like, oh, well, you know, we, we need to promote the arts and make them affordable to everybody. Uh, have you gotten tickets at the Kennedy Center? Yeah, it's not affordable. They ain't cheap. Guess what their budget is? $105 million. I thought it was billion there for a second. $105 million is the budget. So $105 million is being, confiscated, building. is being confiscated and sent to this, sent to these people. All right. So that you can spend $200 a ticket to go yeah. see Hamilton. Yeah, exactly. Oh my you, gosh. You won't find me there. When we, so we got, that was a, that was a special thing. When our daughter graduated, she loves theater. She wanted to see Hamilton. She loves the soundtrack. So I, I was adamant, like we were going to get, we were going to get her and her fiance, good tickets to the to go see Hamilton. Oh my god. Holy crap. I don't know where that 105 million dollars that they're confiscating through taxes is is going to in the Kennedy Center, but I know it wasn't to price reductions for tickets to Hamilton. Wasn't I've never wasn't spent it like that much. $400 a ticket on that one? I think it was like 400 bucks a ticket. I don't know if it was that much. I think And Daddy was Santa and was like, "Here you go, sweetie." No, no. There that was this was a big milestone. She had graduated. She really wanted it. They wanted good seats. It wasn't that much either. It wasn't that much. Almost. It was not that much. 
All right. Um, <laughs> so anyways, you got all these different, all these, gosh, dang. Federal La- Labor Relations Authority, gone. Um, Harry S. Truman Scholarship that's a, that's Foundation. Office of Government Ethics. Theoretically, I would keep that, but I'd say they're not doing a bang up job, right? So th- look, this this is where we're at. So here's what here's what I want us to do in, in kind of wrapping this up. So here's what we kept. Um, the guy who presses the nuke button. Yeah, here's what we kept. <laughs> Would we have the state? So the State Department. State Department is a legitimate function of government. Although there's got, a lot within the State Department that needs to be cut. Th- there is, but they've got 30,000 employees, $58.1 billion budget. Um, there's definitely stuff from cut from state. And not only that, I would totally reevaluate the way that the State Department actually trains uh, their, their foreign service officers and everything else because holy crap. Treasury is currently 100,000 employees and 16.4 billion budget. I would drastically, but again, we talked about what they what they actually have um, and, and what they can allocate. I, I don't see why the Treasury needs 100,000 employees. Someone's going to have to explain that to me. It's, it, it's probably some of the more the law enforcement wings, the National Mint, stuff like that. Department of Defense, 852 billion, 3.2 million employees. Um, it's I would cut from the Department of Defense, and I would certainly require that there be far more efficiency, but I would keep it. Um, Department of Justice, we keep the Department of Justice. However, um, significant cuts to to certain law enforcement agencies that we just don't think should exist. Department of Interior currently has 70,000 employees and $35 billion. I think the first thing I would do with the Department of Interior is sell off massive amounts of federal land that we have no business um, you know, managing and I would significantly cut the number of employees. Department of Agriculture, two hundred forty-two billion, one hundred thousand employees gone. I'd cut it; doesn't exist anymore. We don't need a. We do not need a federal Department of Agriculture. Sorry. Uh, Commerce, forty-one thousand employees, sixteen point three billion gone. Department of Labor, fifteen thousand employees, ninety-seven point five billion gone. Now again. There's certain there's certain sub agencies with some of these things that would be kept. So don't think that the whole ninety seven point five billion is gone. They're, they're just we don't need a Department of Labor. Health and Human Services sixty five thousand employees one point seven trillion. That's mainly because of Medicaid and Medicare, but we don't need a Department Federal Department of Health and Human Services. Housing and Urban Development nine thousand employees sixty one point seven billion gone. Department of Transportation fifty five thousand employees one hundred forty five billion. I, we want to completely cut that. Uh, we keep elements of the Department of Transportation, but we definitely cut it overall. Energy, uh, Department of Energy, 10,000 employees, 45.8 billion, gone. Department of Education, 4,200 employees, 79.6 billion, gone. Veterans Affairs, um, I would keep, but here's what I would change about it. Right now they have 235,000 employees plus 308 uh, billion. I don't think the VA needs to be in the business of running hospitals. Um, vouchers to, to the extent, I, I think what we actually need is, I don't think we need a bunch of VA hospitals. I think what we actually need is veterans that are able to take a benefit that they earned, right? They didn't just get it because they, you know, were there, they got it because they earned it and they could take that benefit to, to local hospitals and things like that. Um, if, if you wanted to make some sort of special argument for veteran affairs, I could see certain things dealing specifically with combat related issues. Um, but for the most part, I think it would be better if you just gave the benefit directly to the veteran and let them take it wherever they, they went. Because right now you have in this, you have this situation where you, you got to drive 50 miles to the nearest VA hospital. Um, and, and it, once it goes over 50, there's some veterans choice 
things that you can utilize, but it, I, I just don't think it's great. And then Homeland Security, 250,000 employees, 101.6 billion. Again, what we would do there is probably get rid of the overall overarching Homeland Security. We'd still keep like Customs and Border Patrol and a lot of those agencies. Just not sure that if having a Homeland Security has actually been beneficial to interagency cooperation. So there you have it. The federal government is significantly reduced in overall size. A lot of departments gone, a lot of independent uh, agencies gone as well. We couldn't even get to all the independent agencies. If I were to sit here and literally just scroll down as fast as I could reading them off, you would just be shocked at how many there are. You would just be shocked. And, and this is the part that really, I think, irritates a lot of us when we look at this. We will look at one of these agencies and we don't come to the conclusion that the reason why they exist is not important. We don't come to the conclusion that there might be a particular problem or challenge that needs to be addressed. What we question is, first, why is it the federal government's responsibility to address it? Second, okay, if this agency has existed, what has it done? How much has it spent? And, and I'm tired of people looking at it exclusively from the standpoint of, oh, well, but if they hadn't spent the money on this, this thing wouldn't exist. Okay, but if they hadn't taken the money from people in the first place, what are the other things that would have existed? What are the other priorities that, that would have been addressed if individuals that had the ability to spend their money on the things that they prioritized as opposed to what politicians prioritized? A politician sending money to somebody that called art the idea of putting a crucifix in a pot of urine. This happened. Right. I'm sorry, but I don't know many people right now, even people that are, that are, I don't know many people that are working incredibly hard to make ends meet that would have said, yeah, that was a good prioritization of my tax dollars. And yet that is inevitably what happens when we give more and more power, authority, and control to federal agencies. So please understand, this is a very important distinction. I think the arts are wonderful. I think the humanities are wonderful. I think a lot of the other issues that we're talking about today are wonderful. And, and there is certainly a need for action within these particular areas to address challenges, to promote things. Great. But I don't think it should come at the coercive power of government, especially at the federal level, because that's where we get these long lists where somebody can sit down and find $485 billion in, in stuff that 90% of the population would look at and say, that's ridiculous. And yet that represents that represents a, a, a amount of waste that is larger than the state budgets of any state in the country. That's how much waste we're looking at year after year. This isn't just a one-time thing. It's not like we found $485 billion worth of waste and that was it. No, it's year after year after year because of federal mismanagement. And, and this is the part where it becomes time for people to start thinking of it in terms of, it's not that I want everything to go away. It's that, that we have tried to use these federal agencies to achieve these end states and they have failed. And if you're going to reward failure, if you're going to reward failure by simply giving them bigger budgets and more people and more authority and more rules and regulations to be able to enforce, what gives us any assurance that things are actually going to get better? Why isn't it time for those of us who look at these problems and say, I have a feeling that either the states or localities or individuals just simply making their own priorities or working together in voluntary cooperation, either in the marketplace or in charitable institutions or in other civic organizations, I think they would do a better job. Why do I think they would do a better job? Because they're more accountable. Because those people that can't just take your money arbitrarily in the private sector 
they are more accountable to the outcomes for what they spend the money on. States are more accountable to their constituents than I would argue the federal government is. Localities are more accountable to their constituents than I would argue the states are. So let's start looking at some of these problems. And when you say, well, they're just too big, most big problems are solved by millions of people working at a local level, either again through charity or through the marketplace. Because the way the problem affects them on that individual level is usually unique. Or there is at the very least unique aspects that can't be addressed by some massive federal bureaucracy handing out dollars to the people with the best lobbyists. We, we keep saying that the real problem here is, oh, it's all these lobbyists. Ladies and gentlemen, the lobbyists wouldn't be there if the federal government didn't have the power over life and death of your businesses, of your hospitals, of your school systems. They're there for the same reason that robbers rob the bank. It's because that's where the money is. If you're going to give all the money to federal, to politicians and bureaucrats, well, then, of course, industries, education, hospitals, doctors, everyone is going to go to that place to try to get it. And they're going to try to figure out the best way to do it. And what you're doing is you're not putting power in the hands of consumers. You're not putting power in the hands of the people that provide the products and services that we all want. You are putting the power in the hands of politicians. And it will inevitably produce these kind of perverse results. I don't care how nice and ethical and friendly the politicians are. If you give them this much power, it's going to get abused. And they will believe they are doing it for the absolute best purposes imaginable. They will believe that they're absolutely committed to getting the best, the best outcomes for everybody. You look at all these mission statements. They sound wonderful. How could you be against that mission statement? I'm not against the mission statement. I'm against believing that you're capable of achieving it. And I am tired of you taking more and more and more from the American people and never once coming back to those same people and saying, at the very least, hey, thank you. Thank you for producing all of the money that we confiscated from you in order to produce these end states. No, you fail to produce the end states and you go back to the very people that actually produce the wealth that you took from them and you treat them like garbage. You treat them like they're greedy because they just want to keep more of what they've earned. Because guess what? If they could keep more of what they earned, they wouldn't need your stupid department. They wouldn't need your agency. They wouldn't need your handout. But then that would leave you without a job and it would leave you without power. And gosh, we can't have that. And you wonder, you wonder, why Anthony Oliver's song, Richmond, North of Richmond, has been so powerful. I, I said it like day two when that song came out. I said, watch, they're going to they're gonna try to destroy him. Not just because of what a song said. They're going to try to destroy him because of the way people from all walks of life, of different political perspectives, of different ethnicities, the way that they're all listening to it, hearing it, and resonating with it. People are tired of feeling like our future is no longer within our hands and they're no longer buying that we're one election away from solving it. And part of the reason why they don't is because we just read off today what these organizations consume, what they take, what they're supposed to do with it, and what's actually happening. And so the real solution is you reduce this, you cut this, you take this away, and you put the power back into the hands of the people that are actually out there working trying to take care of themselves so they don't need someone else, least of all a government agency to take care of them or their families. And that's how you actually get back to the sort of country that we all believed we were living in. So 
I want to thank you to everybody for all the birthday wishes. I want to thank you to everybody uh, for the input, the questions that were asked. They were great. I think, I think we did a pretty good job of cleaning house with the federal government today. There's more work to be done. I'm sure some of you think we could have cut more. Some of you think that maybe, maybe we shaved a little bit too much off on some departments, but I stand by the decisions that we've made today because again, it's not their money and it's not their power. It's yours. And the more control you have over your life, the more convinced I am that you're going to make better decisions. And millions of people getting to do that is what it constitutes to be a free country, not just simply voting every two, four, or six years. Once again, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to Good Ranchers for sponsoring this podcast and the work that we do. It really makes us, it makes it possible for us to be able to dedicate more time to this. I'm not sure if, if people understand this. We all have other jobs. <laughs> we all have other jobs that, that pay the rent and pay the mortgage. And so when we do have an advertiser like Good Ranchers that comes in, comes alongside us and, and offers a product and offers a deal to our listeners, again, promo code Nick for $25 off, free shipping. And if you sign up for one of the subscriptions, not only can you get locked into a good price, but you can also get two pounds of fresh ground brief it's a brief fresh ground beef. It's a product that you're really going to like. Um, it, it's good value and it's, uh, it's by a company that is out there again, not trying to just play on your patriotic sympathies. They're actually trying to prove that by doing the right thing, you actually produce a really good business and a really good product. So thank you very much to good ranchers. Thank you for all of you for listening. Please consider joining our chat, joining our community, because again, I want to thank Neil, uh, Neil was one of the inspirations in our community chat for this episode. You know, what would we actually cut? What would we actually do? We had some other people too that also contributed insight to that. So we hope we have answered your question and we uh, hope you're having a good week and we will see you on Thursday. <laughs>